Yeah, welcome, Vibranners. It's another excellent Wednesday night, the last one before the judgment. <laughs> Dylan's wearing a suit. I feel a little underdressed. Honestly, after seeing uh, Big Bear's amazing tailored suit when he did a stand-up special at the festival, and now you've got one on, and I had to, I wore like a, I just had to go to a funeral, and I wore like a, <laughs> a J.C. Penny <laughs> jacket and. And so I feel a little underdressed. I want to upgrade my look, especially before we go into the fall. But yeah, you're looking great. How's it going, man? Everything's going great, dude. I just, uh, I've been crushing, finally making, um, you know, it's funny when you do, when I do this work, sometimes I look at things where there's not a whole lot to pull from and it's not as exciting for me. And then sometimes I get on these waves where I'm like really getting into some incredible things. There he is. What's up, you sexy beast? <laughs> He's got the zebra in the background. Uh-oh. That was a four-hour, uh, five-hour vibrate for people who want to go back to that, baby. Whoa. Nice. Good to see you, gentlemen. Welcome. You know, it's funny. It's like uh, I was just thinking, like, I think I'm catching feelings for you guys because the longer I go without talking, you're like, man, I miss Gabe and Chance. I wonder what they're up to. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's got to be just like a, a monthly thing at minimum for us to do a, a vibrant. I think those are some of our best shows. I always feel good about anytime I put a PowerPoint together and then we can riff on it. So I think we should just keep that up because the syncretism studies are never ending. And we have already talked about Oralinda. I think this episode will go over just fine with people who didn't catch that. But it wasn't that long ago and I linked it in the description if anybody wants to review with a part one in that show we talked more about the linguistics the cool six-spoked wheel and how the letters can be derived from it the philosophy or the like the the mystic philosophy of the Oralinda, and all that stuff is really likable <laughs> youtube's trinity right now <laughs> oh rachel how dare you uh the thing about the Oralinda has I've looked into it more and Dylan's looked into it more. I don't think we're going to be able to describe this from the position of, you know, trying to defend the historicity of the text as something describing real events. And that's not to hate on people that do see it that way. I have the same feelings about any scripture, any holy book that to me, the value is in allegory. So that's probably how we're going to be mostly examining this for right now. I'm not saying there's nothing in there that that describes historical truths. There likely are, just like there are things even in the Bible that describe something somewhat true in some respect, like a real geographical location, for example. But as Dylan was saying before the show, this is going to be more of a marvelous demystifiers style take. And there's a lot of value in allegory. I think allegory is more valuable than history because history is never actually 100% authentically true. It's always someone's best shot at describing or their intentional distortion of what really happened. And to put it frankly, the past doesn't even exist. There's just right now. For all we know, the past is shifting and its potentials and probabilities are as malleable as the future. We really don't actually know that. <laughs> We do have the ability to look at artifacts and things that are found and gain some wisdom from that. But even still, it's like, what are the uh, future people going to think about our our 
artifacts. They'll probably get a lot wrong in their assumptions about it. So we're going to look at the Oralinda more closely. This is going to be far from a comprehensive journey through all of the stuff that's in the text. There's a lot there, but you know, some selections that we find interesting and the, so same with the marvelous and mystifier show. Anytime we're examining fiction or allegory or this particular work, what I think is most fun and useful is how we can pull out the keys of symbolism as they pertain to the universal priesthood system. And those fingerprints are all over this bad boy in the language, in, you know, some of the, you know, it's just all over it. And that's what's fun. I think that's the best way to learn the the keys to the system is by looking at examples from text, fiction, even Marvel movies, as we sometimes find them. You know, actually, we find them constantly in those movies. So uh, Gabe, Dylan. Oh, Gabe's dropped out. He'll probably be right back. Uh, Dylan, you have anything to add to what I'm saying there? No, other than the fact that like, I really enjoy when you guys do the Marvelous Demystifier uh, series, even though I've never seen the movies because I just don't watch them. I'm more of a, a video guy, game guy. Like I very rarely, I don't watch anything. So I don't know really what's going on. Um, but I'll be damned if I'm not balls deep in Starfield right now. So like I have, I have my things where I just selectively dive in and I love all the symbolism. And, you know, I think it's really fun to look at this. And I just want to reiterate for people who haven't seen our previous episodes, it doesn't matter if the Oralinda is unauthentic or the point that is interesting to me is somebody created an alphabet and they wrote a text in that alphabet. Now, where I would have Tolkien level shit. Yes. So if we were to analyze the Lord of the Rings. We could spend so many episodes going through it and it's such a powerful story and it's such a great book and the movies are epic, but it's a totally different thing if we were to take the Lord of the Rings and travel the world or go online or whatever and tell people that the Lord of the Rings is a historical um, book. It's just not. And when you look at the Oralinda. Although there are, there are hints of actual geographical locations and things in the Lord of the Rings, but that, you know, and and that's part of any good fiction is it's got a, it's often rooted in, in some traces of reality. That's part of what gives the the ability to make it feel tangible. It might even be, we broached this subject. Is it, you know, is it possible that somebody was actually writing something as a way of leaking? Maybe some, maybe somebody came across something in the Vatican library or whatever. And it's like, Oh, this is totally different. Let's put out a fictional story or whatever and try to get that out there without being delivered to the executioner. You know, you got to remember that in the old days, if you contradicted the narrative, the penalty was really stiff. And oftentimes the further back you go, the, the closer, you know, it is to you were just delivered to the executioner, even if what you were saying is the truth. Now I'm not saying that's what the Orland is. I'm just saying it is a possibility that we've explored. And for anybody to get upset or rigid about us just working with this and seeing what else is out there, because the alternative is from a historical perspective, if you were to bring this to any scholar and try to talk about it being authentic, you would get laughed out of the room. And I don't mean to be vicious about it. I'm trying to be as gentle as possible because 
so many people that watch our stuff and have seen my podcast have asked me to look into it. But from a technical standpoint, it doesn't have anything about it of antiquity. Even the alphabet it uses is way over 20 letters. So right there, you're already not, it can't have been written back then uh, when it's claimed to have been written in like the 5th or 6th century BC. And people would say, well, it was written, but the stories have been retranslated over time through the family. You can make and you can make endless excuses for why it has so many letters in its alphabet, but ultimately it does not have the marks of antiquity. Uh, it also is written left to right, just like English. Um, and a lot of the words read like English. And you can true that that uh, idea that it's been updated in in retranslations. You know, that's a valid argument, but it's not a provable argument necessarily. And oftentimes when that happens, there are still fingerprints of the the old language system or old way of things being said, if you know what I mean, in it as it's been updated into new alphabets or now right to left, left to right as the, those things switch. So that people you know, do that with the Bible chance. They do that with the Bible. There is zero, zero manuscripts pertaining to the gospels that exist prior to the sixth century. So I've already done this work in a way more controversial level. And that's not my opinion. That's literally uh, Michalis, one of the greatest biblical scholars who will concede that there is nothing of the gospels that is prior to the sixth century AD. So for anybody to say, oh, well, that's because they were all lost and now we have all these translated. But don't worry, everything's right in those. They just, you know, they, it, they don't exist. And I'm sitting here looking at, well, you can look at the language. There's m- plenty of other examples to show that it wasn't written. And it's using names that didn't exist and could not have exist by certain people, right? And if and we stay in the realm of allegory, though, then none of, none of that it devalues it. It stays valuable. It's just exactly just the the history thing. That's why, you know, I don't even like I don't even like the idea of uh, <laughs> historical like history is lies, lies agreed upon. You know, the, the all we really have that anchors us to history truly is architecture. You know, even artifacts are easy to fake. It's the big monoliths that are the, you know, the period at the end of the sentence of what was going on in the ancient world. Yes. And then, you know, language is helpful if you have it, right? Especially an alphabetical system. And so to, if, if any of this were authentic and if you have this language, well, there would be examples of it. It wouldn't just be surviving in one manuscript, right? And people can say, oh, well, it was destroyed or everything you think, you know, is a corruption of their language. But the reality is, is that's not how this works, right? You will find something. And if you don't, if you just look at even the status quo, the earliest Finnic, right? You know, because we've gone back and forth with like, does this come from the North? Do these people come from the North? And people have asked me about the Sami languages and um, all that stuff. But the reality is the earliest inscription you have of Finnish is, wasn't found until 1957, of course, by the Soviets. And it's, again, it's like a form of Cyrillic, which comes from Greek. I mean, I can, I've never studied Cyrillic a day in my life and I can look at the letters and um, there'll be like subtle changes. Like if you look at the Phoenician, 
there's like a there's like a modern version where it's kind of like that, but then you'll see this like other one that's used in Cyrillic, but that's like a Coptic version. But it's an M in Phoenician, but in the Greek and Coptic, it's going to look like an S, or it's going to function as an S. And so you see all this stuff. You can, there, if you the, the reason the alphabets are significant, and the reason why I focused on them, is because it is literally the fingerprints. And so if you're investigating your crime scene or you want to know what's going, what's going on, your ability to decide, to figure out which letters were used by which people at which times, if you can date it, then you can get a good estimation of the age that that art uh, event took place or that that article was written, whatever that stone was inscribed. But when you look into this, you will see that it's using a much younger system. And so that's why I don't think the value is talking about it as historical. I think the value is just looking at it as for the work of art that it is, you know? Yeah, that's where I'm at with it. And that's basically our emphasis as we go forward here into the slides to riff on. Yeah, man. You know, a lot of thoughts are flashing through my mind as we lay, uh, we lay these premises out to fulfill later. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of like uh, people take a worn out rounded stone for granted because they're only looking at the top of it and it's all, it's all benign. Uh, but we're going to come along and we're going to turn that stone over and find out the crystal quartz hidden value underneath from looking at it from an angle that is, that has not been appreciated before. You know, that's, that's something that I am so, so fortunate not to, answer to any academia or any externalized authority. I'm coming at this with legitimately innocent, pure, un, untainted, first-time virgin eyes to uh, turn over a territory and give, uh, and give a reflection that has not yet been publicized. You know, like uh, so many people harp on, the ter- on that word history. They're like, oh, it's his story. Oh, the patriarchy. And here we come along and we're like, wait a second. Is it the hist oracles? Is this a reference to the sibyls? Did we not have the context for the actual real intention behind that word? And now everybody looks at it with a new fractal light. And now they can look back and be like, it's the hist. That's the, that's the, the, the fumes of the Pythia coming to the oracles that are giving these riddles, speaking in like a metatronic, multiple polyglot uh, capability that becomes a hypercube or a hyper sigil that is passed down. And here we come along to unpack it in a way that everybody has to eat their hat when they thought that it was the patriarchy. I like, when you say, I like how you said we, Gabe, because I created the, I just drew this right now. The SQ is the status quo. The T is the Taruter community. The T is where all the people who just speculate and talk about shit and don't really provide evidence. The status quo is this rigid uh, institutional explanation for his story, which is Herodotus's story. That's why it's, that's where that comes from, his story. Um, and then there's us. We are the TOS, which is the tip of the spear. And that's where I want us to be. And to get, re- to get this, we have to deal a little bit in this 
and, and, and in the status quo. But neither of the, these guys, the status quo and the Taruter community, are the same. Uh, they're oppo-sames. They're the same types of people at other ends of the spectrum. And they can't, like, to, to, the, to the ones on the, in the truther community, they, they don't really care. They know they're being lied to, but then it's like this morally relative truth is whatever you want it to be. And the people in the status quo are, my paycheck depends on me not going outside these certain boundaries. And then there's where I want us to be, which is at the tip of the spear, unafraid to go against uh, to go against the status quo, but also unafraid to um, delve into some speculation and Dylan, analyze it. Dylan, and if you flip the TOS, it's SOT, Servants of Truth. Bam! I like that too. That's even better. There, no, tip of the spear. I just like that it's reversible, that it fits both ways. It's both. It's both because you have to be a servant of truth. And sometimes a lot of us come from a... What's <laughs> up, Lou? Uh, a lot of us... Were, Lou has some gravy. He should, he should come. I would like to have him to give us some stuff about his... Any day now. MPK Lou? and booty yoga and yeah. old world Micmac. You guys can call in anytime you want. If you're scared to go on the show for like a full show, just come on, hang out for a little bit. Um, but yeah, like... the. The thing is, is you have to be willing to, a lot of us started out as the status quo and we just realized we were being lied to and that's all, you know, Gabe, yeah, Gabe, Gabe is a savant. He's, he's <laughs> like, Gabe is, you know, he can, Gabe is like up here and he, he comes down like a bird and like swims with us a little <laughs> bit and then he leaves. <laughs> but we're like still in the ocean and, you know, we still got, we're still working with the solid, you know, some sort of medium and he's just like, <laughs> So what I like, speaking of which, his breakdown of historical, his oracle, that's so on point. And there's a lot of echoes of the oracle and the symbols in the Oralinda. I'm doing this because on my screen, <laughs> on my computer screens, that's where my slides are. But in the, on the show screen, it's over here. So on that subject, you guys want to start getting into it? I think we do. All right. We are ready. Okay. So there's a section in the Orlinda near the beginning. That's the book of Adela's followers or the book to Adela's followers. And in the, I should post, this is a public uh, article you posted, right? For tonight. Is that a free one? Dylan? Oh, you're muted. Though. Oh, are you asking me? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. that is uh, all of this stuff, as far as I know, is um, I wouldn't publish anything that's not in the like all of this is from like the 1800s. Uh, so the, the copyright has worn off. But your article about about that, you know, some of the content for tonight is coming from. Oh, so it's not even an article. This is research that I just abandoned because I, I only focus so much of my time on it. And I'm just like, you know, there's not enough here for what I'm trying to do with my work. Right. I'm not mm. saying it's about, you know, so you use this and for whatever you want. Got, and if you guys want to take it further and use any of that, you have my blessings and permission. It's all yours. Yes. Yeah, so it allows me to look at it not signed in. So that means the link I just posted in the live chat, people can check out if they want to follow along or just look at it later and see some of Dylan's thoughts. Cause I'm yeah, sure it is published it on my Substack from my members for sure. So one of the things near the beginning of that article, you're demonstrating how the 
Adela character is encoding the sacred feminine, which is a great place to launch because a lot of the other things that I wanted to talk about tonight are revolving around the, the goddess cult, the goddess culture, and its various myriad forms, always <laughs> worth talking about. So I'm going to read, this is from Orlenda. Adela is attributed to saying, you all know that I was there, that I was three years bergd migged. <laughs> you also, you know also that I was chosen for Volksmotor and that I refused to be Volksmotor, which I think means folk mother, because I wished to marry a Paul. But what you do not know is that I have watched everything that has happened as if I had really been your Volksmutter. I have constantly traveled about, observe, observing what was going on. By that means, I have become acquainted with many things that others do not know. You said yesterday that our relatives on the other side of the Wesser were dull and cowardly. But I may tell you that the Magi has not won a single village from them by force of arms, but only by detestable deceit, and still more by the rapacity of their dukes and nobles. Freya has said, we must not admit amongst us any but free people. But what have they done? They have imitated our enemies, and instead of killing their prisoners or letting them go free, they have despised the council of Freya and made slaves of them. Because they have acted thus, Freya cared no longer to watch over them, or Freya. They robbed others of their freedom. Hello, dogs. They, They robbed others of their freedom and therefore lost their own. So we're getting this association of the goddess Freya with the idea of freedom. And <laughs> take it away, gentlemen. <laughs> I mean, what what else can you say about this? You know, and when you look at what's what was uh, Venus, you know, this is all, you know, Columbia, Lady Liberty, right? Venus, that planet used to be called Phosphorus before the the sun deity was ascribed to that that name right and because it announces the dawn right so it's closely related to the sun but what was the latin counterpart to phosphorus you guys know chat anyone as the uh, alternate name for venus the the planet what was it before morning star phosphorus and lucifer yeah lucifer so Luciferos, yes. Yeah, at, at the at the get-go, this is a Luciferian doctrine, whether you like it or not. And this is one of the um controversial things in my work is I show that Mary is Lucifer. Right? It's not a it's not a mass, it never was a masculine archetype. It's always a feminine archetype until the church came in. So right there, I mean, you can make what you want of that. Yes. Uh and uh Lucifer in the infernal realm has the shadow of pride. Uh, And at the moment, there is a very controversial spark in the minds of humanity around the word pride. Uh, So, you know, some uh, some words should not be marketed or labeled or appropriated to any cause. Pride should be available to all. And it's a bit of an insult for pride to be cornered or uh, captured or associated to uh, 
to any one particular concept. But uh, but isn't that so Luciferian? Isn't that so very Luciferian? Uh, so yeah, uh, pride is a giver, uh, a giver with the shadow of pride uh, on my on my chart. I'm I'm learning this as I go. Uh, it, but that's uh, but that comports to what they said about they use deceitful means. They didn't kill anybody. They're using these uh, deceitful tactics, and that's part of the giver uh, uh, agenda. Is that it? Never says no. It just gives and gives and gives uh, endlessly, freely. It gives freely. And pay attention to that in the United States usage of this symbolism. They call the goddess Columbia. And Columb meaning dove or Colum without the B is heaven or column. Very important to have that in our heads for all the times we're going to see the dove symbolism, Jesus with a dove. That's no different than, as you point out in this article, the uh, this motif of Lady Liberty or Libera having to do with the ancient Roman religion. And Liberalia, March 17th, <laughs> the festival of Liber Pater and his consort Libera, Libera, however you might say that. And isn't that basically uh, like Libra, right? It's, 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 if you look at the sacred name of Christ, that's, uh, it looks like Cairo Sigma, but it would, in English, it would look like CHRS. You'll see on the breast of the Pope in the Latin Vulgate, that sign of Libra, it's the sun crossing over the vernal equinox, or the autumnal equinox, excuse me. Sorry about that. And that's and the judgment and the book of life. If, you're, if, you know, if Jesus has written your name in the book of life, then you pass the judgment. And if not, you go, <laughs> then you die and perish in hell, which is winter. And then, of course, Libra Pater, meaning the free father, is Bacchus. So with this festival, or the father of the book, right? Because Liber is the tree tree bark that they wrote on, That's right? They roll them up in volumes. That's where volumes of books comes from. And I didn't know the holiday March twenty fifth Lady Day, which is interesting. Do you know anything else about that holiday? Yeah, that's the um, that's it's also called Hilaria. It's it's like that's like the old equinox. Hilaria, okay, the hill of Aries, the hill of Mars. Yeah. And so we now, like I just did a post today where, where I live, the actual, there is no equinox. First of all, it's conceptual. There's not one day where day and night are exactly equal. The closest you're going to get is within, within minutes. And for me, the closest to that is on the 25th of September, not the 23rd as you know, you'll see in a lot of the zodiacal calendars. So a lot of these holidays they're just established for reference. It's not like they're super technical because the instruments to be precise didn't exist when all this stuff was created. And I think what's happened is with the advent of technology, people who are into astrology and stuff, they've gotten hyper specific to a point where they're, they're not getting the bigger picture because it's kind of like, it's kind of like how that hit piece on uh, me when I'm talking about the difference between, you know, Yule feast uh, versus spe spelled like with F E E S T or, or y'all feast like J O L. Right. But it's like our, our space guys like us, we see the same word. We don't get hung up on the variations of spellings because we've, we've 
delved into how this priestly system works and we get it. And the bones of the word, like the vowels don't even really matter. Right. It, and so Freya. The bones of the word are the consonants, you mean? I, I mean, excuse me. Excuse me. Yes. The bones of the word matter. The vowels and stuff don't matter. And what is interesting is like when you see how free it's Freya, you know, like when it comes from free, the sun, which would be uh, Phi, Rho, Ada in Egypt, that Ada with the accent functions like a Latinized I. So we as English speakers see it as EYA. So we say Freya. Because we're looking at words like pray, P-R-E-Y, it's pray, right? We don't say pre. But in the Greek with that eta, it's like an, it's E, so it'd be free. So it'd be fria. And then in some, some places you'll see that's interchanged with like a, a G or a K. So it'll say friga or frika, you know? And again, this is more of a, a Greek influence in that area from probably from Constantinople, you know, like once they got established in the Black Sea and all that area, that's that's probably, you know, like I don't totally disagree with the status quo and like um, kind of like that Scythian influence. But the reason that Scythian influence is being attributed to the Orient is because people haven't figured out by and large that the Pelagians were not Greek. The Pelagians were Etruscans, and that's what my work is doing. Yeah, Frigate. And, you know, there's also Brigantes in Britain, right? And that Briga, all that stuff is going to relate to Italian and stuff and war, the Brigs, the jail, and they throw you in the Brig. And then, the you know, this, so there's a maritime influence as well. There's This stuff is so vast. But at the end of the day, you can see once you identify the letters, you can see it's a system. That's that's the point that I'm I'm kind of making. But the reality is, I think this coming this this free uh, influence coming from free, it's a Greek Alexandrian influence going up through probably Constantinople and the rest of Eastern Europe. Yeah, and they're listing in the chat all kinds of fun fun sinks because once we're starting a word with a uh, the F sound. That can become a P sound. That can become a B sound. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump. And so the Phrygian cap is also what they call what this Lady Liberty character is wearing. What is important here, though, is like when you see Jesus with the dove, that's Jesus and Mary. But it's depending on, you know, there's other ways to look at it. It's, it's the phallus and the yoni. And sometimes the 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 god and goddess will be condensed down into an androgyne. And then other times it will be the you know father and mother separately but regardless they're actually the same being and it become interchangeable depending on when you're seeing him show up in the system and in the irish and i think scottish irish are scottish like if you go back further enough they're one and the same people that bh is pronounced like a v so that's duv and that means black so you got the black doves Whoa. of Apollo. The black Madonna. Wow. Oh, so this opens. Okay. So this confirms. Krish, Krishna means black, by the way. Krishna yeah. And Ireland was littered with Phoenician artifacts. And t- like, so one of the reasons we don't have a lot of this stuff, and I don't know if this is true or not. I'm not saying it's the Persians. It could have been like somebody else invited by the priests, but it's blamed on the Persians. The Persian empire destroyed the majority of the Phoenician temples. And burned all the their writings, so that's why we don't have much. Allegedly, so, right? 
So this is uh, really confirming a lot of the, the thought forms that I'm uh, that are starting to take shape around this. You know, the Mary is the Virgo, uh, and in Virgo is the Hydra constellation, which is very long. It actually runs from Leo all the way down to Scorpio almost. But that is Pandora, uh, and she has uh, in the one the last thing that comes out of Pandora's box. The shape of her box is the Libra constellation. Libra constellation is just off kilter enough that it looks like a sacred chest that the that the door is cracked open. That's that's the ap- the impeccable expression of Libra is a is a sacred chest, a holy covenant, an ark with the with the door just open enough. And then out of that, almost like a plume of smoke, is the Hydra constellation. But it has on its belly a uh, an owl that is actually missing from most star charts, uh, and also a crow, and then a sacred vessel, a sacred cup, which is the Crator constellation. But when you so that dove, the bird, we have two birds: the owl and the crow is on the Hydra. But when uh, but I know that that is Pandora, who from which the dove, which is hope, the last thing to come out of her box. And when you mentioned that dove is actually black, I now can see that we're pointing at that crow. We're pointing at the, that sacred bird that is on the belly of the hydra. Uh, and so in that, some of the some of the Ark mythos, it's not a dove that is released by Noah or the Noah figure. It's a crow sometimes or a raven, a black bird. Yes, I dig that. And that does it totally makes sense because we're going into the fall. And here it's so funny. We started with pride. The pride goeth before the fall, right? <laughs> so there's there are it's actually four cats. There are four cats when we pass through Leo. Leo. We go through Leo Minor, Leo Major, the Lynx constellation, which gets no press at all. I see I actually see that as covertly as Artemis or Hecate. The shapeshifter. She's so cunning. She gets. She's disregarded. She's off. She's off the map. And then there's a Felix constellation as we roll into uh, Virgo. And Felix is just a tiny house cat, a domesticated house cat. And isn't that funny? We go from the wild beast of the of the jungle, and uh, and it reduces. It uh, it shrinks down. It's like a stra- strangely an evolution uh, down to the Felix, which means happy. Felix means happy. Uh, and funny enough, just today, uh, I had a Felix cat cross my path while listening to Nietzsche talk about archery and the lynx vision, having a lynx-like vision. He's saying it in my ear, and then a, a Felix cat walked across my path. I had to share that sync. You know, what's interesting is um, the Etruscans or Etruscans don't really depict cats so as much like as a domesticated animal but a lot of their cat depictions are kind of like you know link more like a lynx and stuff rather than you know or like a leopard or there's there's but they look bushier there's just something that's interesting that there might be some evidence that may lead to something some sort of discovery by looking at that but i just wanted to bring this up because this letter is gonna you'll see it it's it's typically an attrition Phoenician, Pelagian style letter, you'll see on the coins of Athens with the owl, Athe. You know, and that's the root of Athena. Zoom that out a little bit. We couldn't see the whole thing. There we go. Excellent. Wow, that is excellent. And so 
There are historians that have claimed that Athens and Lemnos were both Etruscan colonies. I don't know if it's true. It's just, you know, some people dispute it, but it's out there. So going into the fall, Persephone is, you know, of course, something that comes to mind because, you know, the, the lead on here comes, we're, we're coming from this liber, liberalia festival and that aspect of Roman religion being replaced or combined with uh, Liberia is replaced by Persephone or Proserpina, as you'll see it written sometimes. She's got this entire story of Hades' rape of Persephone, the allegory of Virgo uh, being... The taking of Helen. Yeah, taken down into winter, exactly. So what I find important about this, apart from, and I bring this up all the time, the Venus occultation is not really ever talked about. And to me, that throws a an obvious monkey wrench in the entire idea of <laughs> wandering stars being planets out there and makes me wonder what similar like what other similarities does Venus have with the moon if you know that we are missing if it shares this phasing quality that the moon does. But what I think is important to talk about with you know this so there's a lot of symbolism going on here this is a statue of persephone and dylan rightly showed like explains in his article here about the crescent moon on her head is showing a triplicity like the goddess diana symbolizing the moon the sun and the female zodiac sign and venus all of those things are you know it's a three in one symbol but what is important to add to this is that that crescent moon can also be seen as an arc symbol. And we're talking about the Holy Sailors. We're talking about <laughs> this, this Orlinda. I know it seems like we're getting into tangents away from the Orlinda, but that's what this conversation is going to be like. <laughs> we're, the Orlindas are springboard to talk about bigger symbols. There's a lot in the Orlinda if, if you understand this system. So that's, that's why. And it's not right. really about the Orlinda. This stuff is existing. And um, it's, it's about if you go read the Orlinda yourself, that you'll be armed with some of the keys to know uh, some of the things you're, you're looking at outside of just taking it at face value. But I'm going to read this is from Anacalypsis, Godfrey Higgins. The ship was very often described as a lunar crescent and was mistaken for the moon. And thus she often became an object of adoration when in fact she was not meant to be so. The she's referring to is the moon. If the moon were intended, why should her infant state, the crescent, have always been chosen? Why is she never worshipped when at full or in the quarters by her figure in the latter of which on monuments she would be much the best described? So, yeah, why is the moon never shown in any of its phases other than this crescent? I suspect she was never an object of adoration till the meaning of the amphiprumna or argo was lost. Besides, the moon was very often a male. So here's uh, a plate from ancient pagan and modern Christian symbolism from 1874. Real quick, before we get deep into this, what is the Sabbath day, the holy day of the Muslims? It's Friday's day, Friday. Mary's, Mm -hmm. it's Venus's day. 
right? And what does the Quran say or the Al-Quran say about Mary? Apparently, it mentions Mary more than the Bible does. And it says, O Mary, truly God has chosen thee and purified thee and has chosen thee above the women of the worlds. O Mary, be devoutly obedient to thy Lord, prostrate and bow with those who bow. Yeah, and once you get into the apocryphal type of scriptures, all kinds of interesting things about Mary come out, including that she's also the product of a virgin birth. And when you understand how these things collapse down, then you realize that Jesus is Mary. <laughs> They're the same entity. Mary is Jesus. That's why she gets a virgin birth in some of the alternative scriptures. I think Crow, pun intended, says it best. He's like, if you've got to conceptualize it, just think of the sun being an, an actor playing different roles throughout the year. And that's what a lot of these stories are designed to originally represent. And then it's modern occultism that starts making them more complicated, you know, from like the Renaissance and onward. Right. And, and there's not even anything explicitly wrong with that. We're just getting to the, the roots or the origin, but the further layers that come on top of it, that's the beauty of anything that has like some that's reflective of a truth in nature is that the further you zoom in, the more there's this like fractality uh, where the complexity still matches the overall structure in a like a harmonic pattern. <laughs> so, and, and a lot of, I think what modern occultism tries to do, the, the genuine or the authentic pursuits into this type of magical system are the ones that are looking for that, that pattern authentically rather than just sort of deciding what <laughs> means what that would give something some kind of resonance to enact your intention or shift your consciousness is that it, uh, it reflects the order or the mat that nature does things in. You know, I want to address the point that was made about never uh, depicting it as full. And, you know, in fact, uh, almost venerating these crescents over uh, more so than the fullness of it. Uh, there is something about that sixth day that uh, that was that was heavily overloaded. Uh, even in the Pythagorean order, it was like the sixth day uh, or the sixth moon was more uh, had more weight. Um, but the, one thing that I think might be an artifact that lends to that not uh, depicting the fullness of it uh, would be that. Um, the females go into their menstruation uh, syncopatically, and then they are required to go into a tent for the sake of hygiene. They go into the private, and then there's all these practices that go in in the tent and the midwifery, and there all of that is private and for hygienic purposes. And I mean that both like they don't want any menstrual blood in the food, or it's no longer kosher or halal or whatever they want it to be. But also, it's not like they go in a tent and nothing happens. They're in that tent doing midwifery secrets that we don't, that we'll never get. We'll never, they're probably not even written down anywhere. They're probably somewhere in between the lines of the songs of what goes on in the privacy tent of the ladies during that sacred time of the moon. Uh, so there is a good reason for these things to have been 
lost into the privacy of whatever the ladies do in the lady tent. Uh, so that's on my mind. And then I want to, I want to share a discovery I've had uh, regarding the, the, you know, the Eleusinian mysteries and this Persephone getting swooped away. Um, so Hades on my read, Hades is no doubt is the Boote's constellation. It's the great void. It's this darkness, this chasm, this, there, there is light there, but it's a, it's the great void. It's the most massive, uh, chasm or absence of anything. The Boote's hole. Beautiful. Yes, it's the a boot is hole. I said, yeah, boot hole. Yeah, totally, it is. It's the anatomical butthole, and next to it is the uh, the Corona Borealis, which is the bear den. It's a it's where the bears come out of the cave uh, or go in the cave because it's fall, where they go into hibernation. But I, some my discovery is really rewarding, and that is that right at the crown of the Boote's constellation is a kite. It's the tip of the spear of destiny. And at the head, just above the head of that kite, two times a year, there is a meteor shower, the Boote's meteor shower. It wouldn't, you know, that meteor shower, that double expression of a bathing, a sacred bath coming out of that location. It happens at the pinnacle of the Analima. And it happens at the foot of the Analima. And so the uh, Persephone in a field picking a flower and getting swooped up by Hades and dragged into the underworld, that is happening at the pinnacle of the year. And then uh, the, the, the whole ecosystem goes through the fall and the winter. That is uh, uh, Demeter. She's in protest. She refuses to bring forth the fertility. That's literally the expression of those six months where we're uh, on an S-curve down the Analima. And guess what? It's at the foot of the Analima where the bewoted meteor showers explode a second time. And so the whole story of Persephone getting snatched and Demeter making a protest uh, to Zeus to go, pl- to go join Hades, the gates of hell are literally opening up, opening up and expressing a light show in the exact location where it should happen. And that, I believe, is the, uh, one of the secret of secrets of the Eleusinian mysteries, that at the Malkuth and at the Keter of the Analima, Hades is having a, a, a conflagration. It opens. <laughs> the boot hole opens up. The gates of hell open, you know. Yes. In the sun happened. goes in when it opens on one side, and the sun comes out when it opens on another side. Well, That's we're also exactly. going into that time of year where you know votes. You say boides, but it's votes. I think, as far as I can tell, because um, you got to remember that beta is like a V in the Greek. Uh, right. It's that's Adam, and, and so it's the serpent. The, it's the votive. It's, in, it's the offering. You know, it's the yeah. offering to Hades so that we survive winter. The savior, that fall, the that tempting, it's all happening right uh, going now in the, in, the, in the heavens. Right. And that's kind of that's the kind of the cool part of the end of the story is they come to an accord. And from that point on, Persephone votively, she will willingly uh, goes along with the agreement uh, repeatedly. And that's where the cycles continue. But that votive part is that's uh, the accord. It's the agreement. It's the meeting of the minds. Also, we are passing, if we're in September, going to into October, we're going uh, through Sukkot. And Sukkot is the festival of booths. 
the, the festival of Buotes, where we're going inside into a tent or a private, uh, much like the feminine, the divine feminine, in that time of year, they go into the private. It's a great weave, dude. And it, honestly, it hadn't really quite struck me the time like that we're talking about all this as this is exactly where we're at in the sky clock. But, you know, historically, that's what always happens <laughs> on Vibrant. That's we, why I'm dressed for I'm dressed for judgment, baby. Get going. <laughs> time to come to collect. So the next thing we're going to look at is other aspects of this Virgo and Leo symbolism of this time of year prior to the judgment. If Britannia, the queen of the waves, as she's known, here's Durga. Oh, can I interrupt? I'm sorry. Please. I've done this a while ago. It's just you guys get going and it's like, I can't help it. Like, you know, it's like I get sidetracked, but it's so interesting. Um, it also should be noted that it's claimed this is written by a woman in the sixth century BC. And this is not to be. Um, I don't know. There's really no way to dance around this subject. So I'm just going to say it. The idea of women being literate outside of like maybe a queen or something is unheard of. And the idea of this language being um, proliferated throughout the lands through prostitutes and all this weird shit that was supposedly taught to them through pillow talk. Like it, if you believe that's true, you, I've got a bridge to tell you. Even the Sibyls. <laughs> Even the Sibyls, there's a lot of forgery. Like I've, I've in, in book four, God's Acre for Winds of the Soul, for people who want to uh, listen to that, Chance narrated it. Even then we kind of touch upon the forgery, the likely forgery regarding the Sibyls. So even all the stuff we have of the Sibyls might not be true, but let's just pretend they are true. This is a very niche group of women who are being taught to be literate and they are under the thumb of the priest, basically serving the purpose that modern priests served with like the Kings, how like the accounts of like Jesuits uh, in confession, putting, you know, scaring the hell out of King Louis and like, you better get rid of those blasphemies, uh, blasphemous in your kingdom or God's going to punish you. So he's got to go kill all the Huguenots or whatever, right? Huguenot in or Huguenot, you know, however you say that and round them up and take their property and stuff. This is a function that I believe and I say I believe because I don't know for sure that the Sibyls actually played where it's kind of like they knew ahead of time who would be visiting them with the appointment and they would consult with the priesthood and the priesthood would deliver her the message that needs she needs to write on the leaves to give to the, the person of importance, we'll say. But again, the idea of a woman outside of that framework being literate and writing all this stuff down is, it's a violence to the imagination. It just would never happen. And you I know, don't mean to sound prejudiced. You know, it's got, just, I, it's absurd. I got, I got something. I got something for you this. You have to be a complete man to be a priest. That means the, you have to have that, that fifth mem that member in between your you legs. You have a third gender. leg. Yes. Right. You right. can't. Yes. So that's, that's what I'm saying. If you look at it, it's not my opinion. It's just, that's just the system. It's not like what I think mm -hmm. should be or should, you know, and if you look at female authors, you don't even really see them popping up legitimately until the end of like the 18th, 19th century. It's very, and the rare, ones that did, recent. they, they would usually be writing under a, a male pseudonym name. 
right? Right. It or is always possible that just wanted to pull that up there. That's it, it's ludicrous. I, got, I don't I got, think or Linda specifically I, says Adela wrote this. It's the book of Adela's followers. So maybe it's like attributed to her, but someone else is writing it down. Just throwing that out there. But, you know, we're talking allegory here. I think as an allegory, to me, the most interesting possibility is the idea that the system that became the sibling oracles maybe was an older system that was not ruled by a male priesthood and that perhaps co-opted by empire to be a part of their system later on and uh you know concealed <laughs> put into the private yeah. i think yeah. that's all very possible as you know we did all that civil work of a month or so back let me put a lot on the table that just completely rearranges everybody's thinking let's like let's just throw ourselves way out of uh, any time zone that you ever thought ever existed <laughs> uh hera is white armed Hera. This means that her hands are clean. She is standing in equity. And everybody thinks of equity in, in different ways. But to be in equity, to have clean hands, is to be absolved of any paper trail. There's no attachment. There's no joinder. And so equity, does, it works. It, it's a, it is a fucking hyperdimensional realm. And to try to grasp equity uh, is a, it's a bit of a fool's errand, <laughs> uh, but it's, it is, it's, so let's put this on the table. Literacy to the, to the Greeks was considered the slave's skill to take in the spirit of information, to look at a bunch of garbledy gook, scribbledy scrabble and obey what it's telling you is to be a slave. You're taking in the spirit of something somebody else told you to say. And so, in fact, not being literate is hygiene. That is having clean hands to be hygienic. And Ignorance I would is bliss. Right. That's exactly right. You know, it's, sorry to interrupt you, Jay, but yeah, just, just yeah. a moment. But what you just said is actually one of the excuses that the, the Ottomans for, uh, did for burning all the... Um, right. The libraries at Constantinople and shit, because some of the generals, I forget what his name was. I, I just have an article that I was just doing about him. He didn't, he saw the value in them and didn't want to. And so he wrote to the caliph and tried to, to get them to not burn them. And he's like, well, it's either, if it's, if it's not aligned with the Quran, it's blasphemous and needs to go. And if it is aligned, it's superfluous and needs to go. There's no point. So burn them all. Superfluous, man. That that word has all of the weight of that story on it. You know, when you hear the word superfluous, you should be thinking about the burning of entire fucking uh, libraries, which were actually museums. We call them libraries, but it's actually uh, much like I discovered with the symposium. I burned all the words away, and what remained were these muses, these statues, the stone, uh, the structure, the order. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so uh, I think that the Sibyls are able to communicate, and this is hard for, I'm still integrating this, but there are three levels of communication. There is what is said, what is shown, and what is done. And what is said, that's, that's the literacy. That's what the people are repeating when they see the shapes on the page. That's what is said. But what is shown and what is done, that exists in equity. 
It's not about what you say because actions are more powerful than words. And so when we say that women didn't get into, they weren't literate, it actually is saying that they were above words. They work in equity. That means they work in uh, action, uh, in what is done and, uh, and what is uh, shown and displayed. So they speak on the symbolic level. And I am, these are higher orders of thinking. And I'm having a hard time conveying it into words to everybody, but I'm starting to understand that these three aspects of thought, what is said, what's shown, and what is done, what is said is actually the least valuable. And so while everybody's fighting over how you spell the word and, oh, there's an extra E, didn't you didn't, that's slave mentality. That's crabs in a bucket trying to drag you down because they have an inner tutor. They have an inner tutor. They have the two doors. They're stuck in the left brain, right brain. They got the two doors echoing in their minds. So all that slavish mentality of, oh, you forgot a letter. That's just the crabs in the bucket keeping you down because it's a delay. Uh, They're delaying the inevitable, which is they can't address your argument. So they've got to look for flaws in the armor or something. Yes, 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 yes. So uh, I, uh, I just want people to think about that idea of higher orders of thinking is not about what is said. It's what is done. It's all in the action. Man, that was delicious. <laughs> yeah, uh, and women are masters of that those subtleties of covert communication. You know what I mean? Whereas guys aren't good at it; they're more overt. They like to just tell you what they're thinking, and that's where a lot of uh, confusion can come in because sometimes you know someone's like, "I just want that person to get it." They don't pick up on the subtleties, you know, and guys often don't you know work like that. But again, for me, it's not really about any like critiquing or one's better than the other. It's just, there's a rigid system that we focus on the priesthood and women are not allowed in it. And if you want to include things like the Sybils, fine. But even that is a limited, like under everybody, like somebody's powerful thumb scope of literacy where you're not able to write books and pass history down and have a bunch of children and share that with them. And, you know, this tradition, it talks about how they, they taught all the women, you know, they taught all the women how to be literate. And it's just, we don't, we don't see that not in the ancient world. And, you know, surprisingly, the attritions are known for um, women having a more equal position in society than the Greeks. Yes, yes. So true. The whole chat really gets into it whenever Gabe's like got his eyes closed and he's channeling his higher <laughs> self, multidimensional wisdom. <laughs> but even that equity phrase, you know, interesting how that the roots of that word bring us back to it's the exact word equus, like horse, but with right. an A, but the, uh, the original Latin has an A at the end. Or the right. A at the beginning. So it's Equus with the A at the beginning. It's kind of like that ash ligature. Yes. And then you know, it's about remedy and law. It's about fairness and balance in a way that brings a remedy to somebody's problem, which means it's a cure. It's it is hygienic. It's hygieia. Yeah, man. Yes. You know, uh subversive. Uh this came up recently. I don't let me forget about the horse. I gotta come back to the horse, the Trojan horse. Uh, subversive, like when a writer or a storyteller or a history is 
trying to circumvent some authority, like the king or the pope is going to come down if they say it directly. So they have to go, cir- they have to circumlocate and uh, and go the long way around to get their point across. I just think it's important that we know, like, uh, you know, Dante allegory <laughs> was able to speak on as many as four levels at once. And he wrote on that extensively uh, publicly. But if he can write on four levels, don't you think he could write on a fifth or a sixth level too? And if he's circumventing, if he's circumventing a king purview or the Pope's purview, don't you think he might be circumventing your purview as well? So the idea of the horse as the information and the, the Trojan horse story is that you take in this mythology and then it unpacks later while you're sleeping. And while you're in your, the sanctuary of your bed, there are little soldiers marching through your dreams and there's a subversive value to that. That's an um, LP. It's like it, the layers of an onion. Yeah, man. The more yeah. levels deep in the dream you are, <laughs> the more stealth it deploys. Totally. And this is why whenever I see the word sub or boos, boos means hidden or, uh, or to look for, but it's also sub, which is under. That's a big flag for me. I see the sub and I'm like, oh yeah, subbles. Yeah, very subtle. Nice, yeah, yeah. nice and subtle. Did you finish your thought on the horse and equis? Because I yeah, wrote man. it down. Okay, I just want to make sure. I wrote yeah, it down buddy. and I'm going to read it. <laughs> well, the other thing about the horse is the symbolism of the boat or the ship, taking us back to the the arc that we've brought up and, and the sun that we have more. Yeah. The chariot of the sun big time, but to bring us back to the slides, I wanted to show versions of the mother figure, mother goddess, Magna Mater, you know, other Marys out there, other Virgos with their Leo next to them. Britannia, queen of the waves, Durga from Hindu, the invincible one is one of her epithets. And Kaibel, who we we gotta talk about Kaibel all the time. That's the the Phrygian version of this goddess. And her epithet, amongst others, is the savior who hears our prayers. Just a little nod to Did the you know mother is the son. Some people might be seeing this for the first time. Did you note how that this people is allegedly called the Frisians? And so that's the significance of that Frisian, like Phrygian. It could be just another way of saying the same word, Phrygian, if the G is like a, uh, a gamma in Greek, how they, like they would say, Euro instead of gyro. So it could be Phrygian instead of Phrygian. I don't just, think we I, said that this time I just around. Wanted, but... I just wanted to, just because you're talking about the Phrygians, uh, Phrygians, and I just want to make sure that people know the significance to that. That's totally there. Exactly. The Frisians are what they're called in the Orlinda. The text describes this people. It's their history. But that is philologically a big flag towards Frigian, which that's why we're showing the Frigian caps and Lady Liberty and getting into all that. So, yeah, thanks for laying that out. We needed to say that. There's lots of other goddesses we could get into, but I want to move us forward. So we're talking about the Arga. This is Higgins again. In the mysteries of Egypt and Greece, a ship was commonly used. This was the Arga. This ship was not a common ship, but was of a peculiar construction. 
It was, in fact, a mystic ship. It had both ends alike and ellipse. So think those dragon boats, you know, and they see, see it in China, see it with the Vikings, see it with so many cultures, both ends alike. Ezekiel says, Amphiprumna are used in voyages of salvation. Remember, I just showed that Kaibel, Magna Mater, great mother, she's the savior who hears our prayers. She's, the, she's got the fortress on her head. So Amphiprumna are used in voyages of salvation. This alludes to the processions in which these ships were carried about, in the middle of which was placed the phallus. They were sometimes of immense size. The author Alien informs us that a lion was the emblem of this god in Egypt, that is Hephaestus. And in the curious description of the mystic ship navigated by seven sailors, we find that a lion was figured on the mast in the midst of the effulgence which shone around. This ship was a symbol of the universe. The seven planets were represented by seven sailors, and the lion was the emblem of Ptah, the principle of light and life. All of the <laughs> figures that were just described in this passage we're going to be coming back around to, so that's why I'm putting them on the game board right now. That totally tracks, because Vulcanalia is in August. That's uh, the holiday of Hephaestus. It, it, uh, it's a three-day festival preceded by three more days of Volturnalia, uh, and it uh, cumulatively is an honorific of all the elements. Vulcan is obviously the fire, the volcano, uh, the forge, the metals, the uh, the earth elements. So you got fire and earth, and then Volturnalia is the river, uh, but it also is honoring uh, the woods and uh, the birds, specifically the vultures who have to come and pick up the scraps after the festival is over. And there's probably some sacrificial shit in between the lines there, right? In between the lions? <laughs> uh, now, there's a bunch of sections of the Orlinda that are talking about laws of, their, of the Frisian people. So there's a section titled Laws Established for the Government of the Citadels, where they say, The mother of Texland may have 21 maidens and seven assistants so that there may always be seven to attend the lamp day and night. She may have the same number of maidens who are mothers in other towns. So seven attendants of the lamp, as Dylan points out in his article, that's Zoroastrian, where, which is a cult of the solar eternal fire, the sun. This is an aspect of the ancient system to have in the temple a fire that never goes out, that is told, you know, that they tell the people actually came down from the sun or the deity brought it to them. And that's why they have to keep it going eternally. But the seven attendants, that's very much the same symbolism as the seven sailors that we just brought up for the seven planets. For now, continuing in this laws established for the government of citadels. They say, for the service of the mother and of each of the Berg maidens, there shall be appointed 21 townsmen, seven civilians of mature years, seven warriors of mature years, and seven seamen of mature years. The mother at Texland shall have three times seven active messengers and three times 12 speedy horses. And the 
other citadels each made and she'll have three messengers and seven horses. So <laughs> to me, this does all sound very similar to the, it, what we're reading here out of Oralinda sounds pretty much like a version of the old system that Higgins is referring to in this passage here that I quoted. Just call it what it is. Abrahamic numerology. Still getting around it. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, can I, can I read you something? Remember that article that I sent you today? Can I read you something? Because it's contextual. Like if you look at the story, the idea in the Orlando, or at least with King Friso, who, who, or Friso, uh, F-R-I-S-O, for people who want to look it up, whose name in itself is Isho or Yasha, right? I-S-O in Hebrew is Savior and Fri, the son, the Savior son. That's his name. Well, in their story, they came from India, right? So I wanted to um, read just this tiny little paragraph, but this is where the status quo is making, is screwing up European history. Because of the biblical stuff that they could not shake when they did a lot of this work, or that they were forced to include, we have an erroneous take. And it's this slight adjustment that even if this there were some sort of hidden history laid up in this, it would make sense, right? So like the status quo will say that like the Pelagi or Plasios, meaning uh, the wanderers by sea, I don't know if that's named after the stork or if the stork is named after them, Pelasios, but it's there. But um, in this... Uh, this this desperate need to infuse this with Abrahamic fantasy is what is throwing everybody off. And so just this, in this article, um, it's an essay from the 1700s, over 100 years before um, the Orlinda. And the reason I sent it to Chance is because it talks about how the Saxons' letters were developed by straight lines and circles. And that's exactly the system that the Orlinda uses. Um, but Pelagi appears to be, this, this writer wrote, uh, Pelagi appears to be a general name for those migrators who divided and migrated in obedience to the divine command, fill the earth. And basically it says from their, you know, uh, their, afterwards they acquired different names from their different settlements vis-a-vis or namely the Celt or Celts in the West and Southwest the Scythians in the north and northwest, the Frisians, Phrygians, right? Uh, um, Lacedaemonians and Trojans in the central part of the globe. Um, And Eustathius, the commentator on Homer, called the Pelagians divine because only uh, they only preserved the letters. And Dionysius Halicarnassus mentions an inscription on a pillar in the temple of Diana at Rome, remaining in this time in Latin letters of the same forms as the Greek anciently used. But the point I'm showing you is that if you just correct it, like he cites Dionysius Halicarnassus, who wrote the Pelagians and Turanians were called the same by people all over the world. So that's as good as admitting the Turanians. Why don't, if everybody wants to look up where the Turanian Sea is, it's the West Coast of Italy. And so home, uh, Herodotus, all these people used erroneous etymology that's been debunked by modern Etruscologists, saying that like the Etruscians are from Lydia, whatever. They tried to put this Greek or this Oriental stamp on the Pelagi, on the Phoenicians, on the Italians. 
and their language is not Indo-European. So these Scythians, these Pelagians, these Celts, they're not coming from the Orient. They're coming exactly from where language, archaeology, and everything else shows you that they're coming from. Italy. That is the Central European phenotype. It's indigenous. And everything else of European culture is their diaspora. That's why you don't have places in Scandinavia known as far back as the second century BC. Everything north of the Black Sea, yeah. they didn't know. And they said that it's, people right. who write about that are thought to lay down fables. Now, the only thing is, I'm not saying people weren't there, but it was much like what the Phoenicians did with Britain, keeping Britain secret for thousands of years. So what? They could mine that tin and monopolize the Bronze Age, right? Well, what were, have you ever looked at the price of an amber figurine? It was worth more than a healthy slave's life. And where is the amber in Etrusia coming from? It's coming from the Nordic lands. So they were up there, but they were up there. It wasn't like colonized. It was up there mining and keeping amber nice and expensive. And the way they looked, and and it, that isn't set in stone because even the Etrusian amber hasn't been, quote unquote, scientifically or chemically analyzed. It just has things in it that's consistent with um, amber from like the Baltic region versus amber from Sicily that doesn't have those components. So that's why they suspect that it's from the Nordic lands, but it hasn't been proven yet. But that's where I'm gathering the a lot of this stuff happened. It's because they were mining the amber and amber was a hot commodity back then. Wow, man. Uh, again, I'm getting uh, John the Baptist with his lotus frozen in uh, in honey ping. It's not the same, but it kind of rhymes. But I want to ask, is there a, are you picking up anything out of the Ayoskeras uh, of the Basque? Is there is there a root there? Because that is a that's a gem. That's an artifact language. It's uh, is there a root to the, to the I'm, I, I'm taking it. There is something to it. <laughs> so Basque, if you can make me big chance that people can see this or I can text it to you later and you can include it in like the show notes. I post it on my social media. So I don't you think have, it's not super readable, but oh, oh wow. He's on it. Yeah, Spanish Phoenician, right? So that's coming from the Punic. Carthaginian or Sicilian, which is coming from the Pelagian and the Pelagian and, and the Phoenician are one for one. And what I'm using with, this is why my work is significant, is I'm showing you through history, through the language itself, this is where they're messing up. The Pelagians are not Greeks. This, get this fucking ionic shit out of there. They're the Etruscans. <laughs> and this is the other problem because you need the church to get all up in there. They need to include that. Uh, ancient Hebrew or Samaritan, right? But everybody knows Hebrew was never a language spoken by historical people that's involved with the priesthood or that's involved in this. It's not made common until the Middle Ages. Even the express authorities on Hebrew are the Targums of Jerusalem, which don't come into existence to like what, the 1100s? So I'm not saying Hebrew isn't the system made public. I'm not saying it didn't exist. It just wasn't spoken by historical people. And so what this is, and this, when you zoom out here, this is where you get like Arabic and stuff. And so people like Decody have always like brought up the, uh, 
the significance of Arabic. And if that's, but that is so young, it's so far down on the tree. It's not, it's not towards my ends of what I'm trying to do with my work. Arabic is not ancient. Persia is like one of the last places to get their own alphabet and shit. So just to the Basque for everybody wants to know that's the Spanish Phoenician. It's just Italian. Wow, man. Yeah, man. And they're so protective. They're so guarded for good reason. Everybody's this special boy. It's like, it's like everybody wants to forget where they came from. There's something fucking weird going on in Western culture, man. And I don't know what it is, but you better wise up. You better wise up and start learning your roots because you ain't coming from. (laughs) Oh, they zapped him. Did they zap him? Getting in the roads. (laughs) they They can't be bothered to get plumbing. So he's talking about, yeah, you're talking about India. Waste management, you know, we're yeah, not you coming from there. Cut out for a second there, but oh. yeah, it's it's important to know that. I want to show too the Etruscan amber artifacts. They're fucking crazy. You know, uh, let, me, let me show this. A, a quick footnote. The same day that, uh, that um, Macron became the president of France, Covertly on the private, he also achieved an incredibly high honorific in the country of, uh, I believe it's Andor, which is uh, basically right up against the Basque territories, which is completely against all the rules. You don't become the president and of a country and become an honorific of another country on the same day. Uh, on the down low under all the bells and whistles of the celebratory procedures. Uh, So uh, that is a huge bell and a whistle to the fact that all of this history is still very important to those people. And it was Macron who made an objection when Japan wanted to be included in the, uh, the table of NATO, which is Wotan in reverse. Macron made a stink and he's like, nah, 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 they're not Atlanteans. They don't have access to this table because geography is important. So he was keeping the table amongst the family. I just want to put that all on the record. And, you know, Atlantis is a big deal in even my culture. You know, a lot of us believe that that's where we came from. I have since I don't believe that anymore. You know, nobody has gone at their own people harder than I have. Right. Like, I don't think this mythology shit is true. I think I think they are taking astrotheology and trying to make it history. It's not real. I dig that. Yep. Yeah, I saw uh, somebody was showing like a picture of Lemuria, or and it it literally it's in the place where Hawaii is, and it's in the shape of a hang ten. <laughs> They're trying to show us Lemuria is the shape of hang ten, and I'm like, nah, nah, nah. I'm too savvy. You're not going to get me with that shit. I'm just stoked on these amber artifacts this is a thread i've never pulled on before didn't know the etruscans were mining baltic amber yes or people were bringing their amber to the etruscans to make so some of them this is so one of the things that uh archaeologists are trying to figure out is this is part of the what they call the orientalism the orientalizing period of uh etruscans and the question is, are they importing people from Asia to work in their attrition workshops or are people um, 
bringing the amber to them to carve because it's so valuable. I'm actually, I've got an article coming out in a, in like a couple of weeks. I'm just trying to find the quote of it so I can share with you guys of who exactly said this. So people can look it up on their own without, um, uh, like relying on me and just like bullshitting me. But like, this is, remember I said, uh, that quote that said the Scandinavian name, uh, lands weren't known at the time. It's from Polybius. And he wrote, what lies between Tanis, which is north of the Black Sea, and Narbo, France, right, stretching northward from those regions, is unknown to us at this present, unless afterwards, by diligent inquiring, we learn something of it. They that speak or write anything of these matters are thought to be to know nothing and to lay down fables. So that's the second century BC, guys. It's not that long ago. And it kind of syncs up when you start seeing the... Scandinavian like literature and stuff come online. It's in the Middle Ages. I mean, there's a couple instances where like, look at what we found. He he, it's from 500 BC or AD. You know, or oh, we found this comb, the Vimos hoard. It's got writing on it. It says somebody's name, and it's from the first century AD. Of course, you would have no way of proving that. You know, it's just it, there's a lot of garbage, man. So it was Pliny. In his natural Pliny the Elder, natural history, he wrote, "So highly valued is this as an object of luxury." He's talking about the amber that a very diminutive human effigy made of amber has been known to sell at a higher price than living men, even in stout and vigorous health. So, for everyone else, that's a healthy slave. Those little amber figurines. This guy right more. here that we're looking at, this one right here is listed on this site for $30,000. This little figurine. Fucking crazy. Now, an awesome sink, though, is that this is the coolest one that I found on the quick Google search. That I, and it's a siren. And the sirens are the handmaidens of Persephone. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're like coming full circle here that we've been looking at a, a siren figure. That's wild you know and it's obviously kind of conflating mythologies because the persephone myth comes from the romans allegedly but it's an outgrowth or an extension of something older i'm sure it's evolution of something older the etruscan culture would have made this according to the the dating on it before all that this is from circa 500 400 bc that they're saying on this site whether or not that's correct so i'm seeing uh i'm picking up uh, a particularly triangular eye and an ear. It's almost like a Vulcan uh, elvish ear, but that, uh, and we have 18, I think I see 18 uh, uh, plumes or feathers or uh, rivets. 18 is the moon card. It uh, signifies to me a powerful correspondence with Urania was the master uh, mistress the muse of geometry so the triangular ear and eye tells me that uh, the mastery of geometry is probably integral to this artifact uh, the fact that is only one wing facing forward is unlike maat maat is two wings one in both directions she has ostretched arms an ostrich feather is the symbol of uh, of ma'at. So outstretched arms is a play on this, the feather, the particular feather of ma'at. But I think it's interesting she only has 
her one her wing going in to the east. And there's not, a lot of Egyptian ISIS depictions that look just like this too. Yeah. It it makes me think of like um so if Ma'at is the zero point or the center and her arms are going in both directions, it's as though they're incorporating positive integers as well as negative. Uh, but this one only has the positive integers. That's just a, a random read off the top of my head. Well, we'll move on from this amazing tangent. <laughs> well, real quick. Okay. The most depicted figure on attrition plate mirrors is Eos, E-O-S, and her son, uh, she's, got, she's got angel wings, and her son, Memnon. But Eos is a big deal, and, that, and I think some of that, that winged goddess, you know, that sphinxian, if you will, type of stuff you see is also pertaining to her. Mm. Okay, so there's a section here coming back to Kaibel, uh, where they start to talk about the idolatrous ghouls. <laughs> Makes you wonder about the like the monster of the ghoul. But I'm gonna read ghoul and gall. Is that the that's that's like a, a derogatory word for the gauls? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's how they're calling it in uh that's how it's apparently transliterating in, in the Orlinda is ghoul, G-O-O-L. So there's a short passage here from page 60 on the Orlinda. In the northernmost corner of the Middle Sea lies an island near the coast. The Tyrians, or the Syrians, now came and asked to buy it, for which a general assembly was called. The mother's advice was sought, and she preferred them to be far away. She therefore gave her blessing. But when we later saw what a mistake we had made, we named the island Messelia, or Massilia, meaning bad deal. The following will explain what reason we had for this. The ghouls, as the missionary priests of Sidon were called, were well aware that the land in this southern region was sparsely populated and, from the mo- and far from the mother's reach. In order to create the illusion that they were benign, they made themselves known in our language as truids, which basically that's the same word as druids, adherents of truth and lo- loyalty, truids. True wit would be like knowing the truth. Wit to wit something is to know it. Though, though a more fitting name would have been abhorrers of truth and loyalty. In short, Troans, as our steersmen later called them. When they were well established, their merchants traded fancy copper weapons and all variety of jewelry for our iron weapons and hides of wild animals, which were plentiful in our southern lands. But the ghouls celebrated many. vile idolatrous rites attracting the coast dwellers with their whorish girls and the sweetness of their venomous wine if one of our folk committed an offense so bad that his life was in danger the ghouls afforded him refuge and shelter and brought him to Phoenicia that is palm land when settled there they instructed him to write his family friends and allies about how the land was so good and the people so happy that one could hardly imagine in Britannia, in Britannia, there were plenty of men, but few women. When the ghouls realized this, they abducted girls from everywhere and gave them to the banished men for free. But all of these girls became servants of the ghouls and offered up the children of Ralda as sacrifice to the false gods. So they're talking about 
these ghouls. And to me, this sounds exactly like the Gali cult, not to mention the human sacrifice proclivities that are attributed to the Druids in ancient Britain. So here you have the wicker man here. You have Kybel. So the Gali cult are the priesthood of Kybel. These are the guys who were cutting off their genitals. (laughs) That's what's said about them. I have a hard time believing that. It's extremely hard to believe. It's hard to imagine. Especially in the (laughs) days. Dude, look at today. People are doing it today. So it's obviously something people can be convinced to do. It's uh, Right, but there's all kinds of anesthesia. There's all kinds of ways to do it where you don't actually experience it. You, you go to sleep, you wake up. Well, that could be true for back then too. I mean, this, this, the pharmacopoeia has been around a long ass time. There would have been ways to do it. And you know, another, another thing that lends to that, I agree. It is so hard to, to engage the thought, especially the, the idea that it was in mass. I mean, it's hard enough to think one person would, but that it was like a regular thing. But something that kind of tips the scales for me is the uh, if uh, circumcision at birth is a common practice, then the repeating and the returning to trauma is uh, is a tendency of human nature. So like uh, just insinuating it or building up rites of passage as they grow older, eventually it's going to turn into this a return to the same scar or a re-expression or even think of it this way. It's like, Hey, it's already injured. It's already flawed. You're already, uh, you're already trapped in a prison of your body. Why don't we just set you free and open the whole door up? You know? Uh, yeah. So it's like, uh, incremental measures. You give them a, a nip, they take the mile. I mean, I can see the the idea of it coming up, but just be like, don't make circumcision <laughs> jokes. I'm still like, just the conversation is just like, 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 man, who the turtle fuck? Turtle like, Island? Anybody? Turtle Island? <laughs> you have to explain that one to me. I don't get it. Uh, turtle Island was the nickname for the Americas, but it's probably because they heard about the circumcision cults and all their dicks were turtled up. <laughs> don't, don't include me. I'm going to turtle Island where we keep our dicks in our pants. Well, one of the things I was just going to chime in about the, the lack of historicity in these things is anytime I see people talking about Phoenicia and all this stuff in this like Lebanon, you know, former, like really it's, if you look at it's Sanctanatan, which uh, Betham is pointed out is not, uh, a historian it's actually the name of the book the book of time and it's mythology and it has that one detail that there's not even a phoenician original of has been purported to be the entirety of their history and quote-unquote jewish history so again this is the church and the abrahamics and also that it looks like sanchaniathon yeah it, what he's talking it, about this. Trans, yeah, but it's like I think it's Sankonatan is how they pronounce it or something like that. Right. But the 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 thing about that, aside from it not being historical and being mythology and being attributed to Orientals and Jews and all this stuff, it's perverting what the Phoenicians are and what the Venetians are and what the Italians are, who are not Semitic, even by that, those standards, and do not have the Semitic. There's no affinity that's been demonstrated by Hebraists. There's no Indo-European affinity. It's indigenous to Italy, and, and that, this book, is the, that book reads a lot like Orlenda, honestly. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. And and so the reason I bring this up is because even by DNA, this is why I'm not a fan of DNA. I'm not saying it doesn't work in the short term. But if you go, our DNA changes so much that the Carthaginian carcasses that they've found from like 1500 BC, there's literally no DNA match anywhere. They've tested everybody they could and like they tested over 50 people, something like that in Lebanon and not one genetic match. In fact, there's no genetic match, really. The closest they have is a rare type that's found in Portugal. The point of that is to show you that the DNA changes because of mating strategies and all that stuff and the constant flux, that it's not a reliable source of, like, it's, it's not reliable for historical purposes. But I also wanted to prove, use it, like, even if you are going to rely on the DNA, it totally debunks Carthaginian Punic, Phoenician DNA coming from the Orient or Phoenicia, also known as Lebanon. That's just what I wanted to bring up. So I wanted to compare this founding of Massalia or Massilia that the Orlando is describing with the same account from Aristotle in his constitution of the Massoliotes from the fourth century BC where he says the Phocians, Phocians who inhabit Ionia were traders and founded Massalia. Echunas of Phoacia was a guest friend of King Nanos, which was actually his name. Uexinus happened to be visiting when this Nanos was celebrating his daughter's wedding and he was invited to the feast. The wedding was organized as follows. After the meal, the girl had to come in and offer a bowl full of wine mixed with water to whichever suitor she wanted, and whoever she gave it to would be her bridegroom. When the girl entered the room, she gave the bowl, either by accident or for some other reason, to Euxenus. Her name was Peta. After this happened, her father decided that the gift had been made in accord with the god's will, so he ought to have her. Euxenus married and set up housekeeping with her, although he changed her name to Aristoxene. There is still a family in Massalia today descended from her known as the Potiade because Protus was the son of Uexenus and Aristoxene. So we don't have a lot to go off of there. There's also a version from Pompeius Trogus, a Gaulish Roman writer from, uh, that is summarized by Justin, the Roman historian Justin, which we could get into, but Chance, can you, can you flash what you're reading up on the screen? I'm getting heavy uh, symposium vibes. Yeah. <laughs> Euterpe comes back into the room. She, she's associated with Eryximachus. These names rhyme perfectly. She comes back into the symposium with uh, alcohol. She's, she's carrying the spirits back in the room. She's also got the drunken sailor on her arm. But she, she, uh, she's associated with Eryximachus. These names are... Like the same, they just echo so close. And I know it's not the same culture, but, you know, I think I think the symposium is a huge amalgam from the French. Uh, I don't think. Just to chime in, though, you got this yeah. Marseille, Marseille, that's France, right, too? And then there's also right. Marsiliana tablet, which is, they thought was ancient Greek. It's actually ancient. It's Etruscan. It's an attrition tablet. And this is the, it's that abacadarium. And this is where I'm using this work to say, 
nothing is coming from Greek. The Greek has been inserted to our education systems in the 17th and 18th century, just like the Hebrew. And this is what they're, this is the, the big farrago, if you will, that's fucking up European history is these insertions. Hmm. And they don't uh, belong. One of the reasons I wanted to include the founding myth of Marseille is because, as they say here, the motif of the princess choosing her husband, her future husband in a group of suitors during her wedding is found in other myths like the Svyaya Myara tales in ancient India. And there are it's a it's a mythological motif so you know that's not really orlinda obviously orlinda is not giving us that myth but giving us an alternative story about the founding but regardless it's still saying basically that phoenicians are settling the southern gaul area and southern france area so, you know, whichever version you're looking at, it's still kind of giving us the same overall diaspora story of how people got there. So, you know, in that sense, that's in that sense, this is an example of how the Orlinda may be. Dude, can we just stop right there? Because Mick Mac said something. <laughs> Mick Mac, big up Mick Mac. Um, he, he just saying that. The Orlinda might be telling the Greeks existed in his opinion. And you know what? I'm not that far behind him. I think that it could be an invention too, honestly. I'm yeah. uh, Well, not that there weren't people in those regions, but that the idea of the Greeks as like this unified culture, doing doing things. Yeah. It's extremely suspect. It is so nebulous. It's so nebulous. Like there's quite a few things that we use words that just have, they don't attach to anything Greek. Like we say Greek religion, Uh, wrong. We say the Greek country, uh, wrong. These, these constructs of what we use today, they just don't attach to anything back then. Uh, And I want to, I want to make this comment. Um, I'm really getting, becoming fond of the word amalgam. (laughs) And also, uh, Something that I'm picking up in astronomy is the concept of coterminal constellations. So you can have a constellation that has six or seven coterminal constellations that are attached to or associated to it. And as I learned that uh, that technique in reading the sky, I see that it applies in the mythology, and that's what I think we're seeing here. Uh, like you said, this wedding has a, a name of a character who I've discerned to be a muse named Euterpe. And she is, she dances, she comes from Eryximachus in the three position in the symposium. And this story is an amalgam with coterminal names that attach so closely to what I'm picking up on. So these uh, echoes and ripples, they, uh, they just keep, uh, they keep doors open. Uh, in really fascinating ways. Yeah. So, yeah. Aren't the, like, if you were to like map out a co-terminal drawing, it's almost like a tree, right? The branches exactly. of the tree all go into that, like the alphabets and all that stuff. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Uh, so, there's also this point at the end here, a passage from Strabo in Geographica tells of the Phoenician or the Phoxian 
journey to the foundation site on Marseille and focuses on the introduction of the cult of Artemis of Ephesus to Massalia. She, Strabo tells of an oracle bidding the Phoatian colonists to stop in Ephesus where Artemis appeared to the local Aristarche, Aristarche, <laughs> Aristarche, <laughs> in a dream. They built a temple to Artemis after arriving in Massalia, making the Ephesian woman the priestess. So why this was important to include would just be that in this sense, the Oralenda is basically echoing other historians in their description of the founding of Marseille. Because going back to what Orlinda said about this, you have the ghouls, basically that sounds like the Gali. And the Gali were the priests of Kybel. And Kybel and Artemis of Ephesus have all this syncretism to them that we're basically talking about the same thing. So in that sense, you know, there's some potential there, either whoever composed the, the story of the Orlinda was very aware of Strabo and other Aristotle and other tellings of the, the foundation myth, or their that story has come down to them in a different way. But regardless, there's, you know, we're, we're actually not straying far from the beaten path of uh, the historical narrative in terms of that area. And it's, description we're just introducing the Frisians as the ones deciding who gets to live there or not and it's not straying farther from their mistakes either that's what you know that's why i harped on where i want us to be on the tip of the spear when i see a pattern that is conforming to the status quo rather than what the archaeological evidence and linguistic evidence is showing i'm suspect you know i can't help it so the next things, uh, oops, wrong screen. Next things to bring up. We visited these characters last time, but in the Orlenda, when they're talking about like the genesis of humanity, there are these three Eve type characters. It's a triple goddess, essentially. And what we didn't bring up back then that I wanted to add to the conversation today is talking about these three goddesses who are the progenitors of humanity. Lydda, who is described as black with hair curled like a lamb. Her eyes shone like stars and shot out glances like those of a bird of prey. And she had no regard for laws. Her actions were governed by her passions. To help the weak, she would kill the strong. And when she had done it, she would weep by their bodies. So, Dylan, who is Lydda? I mean, that's, that's Chem. That's darkness, right? That's going to be the entering winter portion of the year. If I had to guess, I don't, I don't know for sure. And what, what would you what would what, you say? Well, what sign brings us into the winter portion of the year? So, uh, Where's the? Technically, the gates of hell is going to be Scorpio. That's where it begins. Scorpio. But when do you start feeling it, Scorpio? <laughs> right. Scorpio is Aquila, a bird of a bird yeah. of prey. Yeah, and that's that's a dual sign. That's like actually as bad as that is. The 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 bird of prey is actually like the higher symbol of Scorpio. That's like the person who's like conquered their problems and they're still a fucking vulture. Because <laughs> I don't know if anybody's ever seen like eagles in action, but like as as noble as they're all made out to be, they're really just fucking scummy. Birds that just steal from others. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Scorpios. 
We still love you. <laughs> I love you, Scorpios. I love you extra. Don't, don't kill me, please. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we'll, you know, we'll go through these real quick. Oh, go ahead, Gabe. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to mention uh, maybe a new again, like us turning over a rock in a way that nobody else ever really uh, gave it the chance. Why moon? The Y moon, women, right? Women are the Y moon. Well, something really fun about that Hecate, that tri, that tripartite, is there are three signs of the zodiac are water, three signs are earth, three signs are fire, three signs are air. Those triplicitous natures create a, like a, a three-part uh, relationship. So they're... And I've seen these rituals where they, uh, the earth element of Taurus and Virgo and Capricorn, those are also a fixed, a mutable, and a cardinal. So we're, uh, when we use the Y moon, the triplicity of the uh, elemental months, we're also catching the future, the past, and the present in that triplicity. So that is a bit of a fun decoder ring to keep keep track of your elements. But if you maintain the three-partite element, you're also expressing the fixed mutable in the cardinal as well. And so that is an alchemical gem uh, that's served me many times. And I know that the Y moons got to keep track of those uh, of those calendars. So I'll just run us through the other two goddesses here. Fenda, the summer sun or summer into autumn, she's yellow. The symbolism here is that her hair was like the mane of a horse. And where Lydda killed one lion, she killed 10. So this is the only one of the three where lions are mentioned, but that's summer symbolism, Leo. Her head was too full, but her heart was too vain. She loved nobody but herself, and she wished that all should love her. That's also, (laughs) that's Leo symbolism. 100%. And who the hell would be writing like this about lions and shit in Northern Europe? Yeah, it's true. There wouldn't be lions yeah. there. And, you know, this this lends to, uh, I use a term that is so wishy-washy and ethereal that it just, people just glaze over. But I talk about light codes. And, you know, that the time of year actually has a, uh, a, of vibrational value in the light spectrum, but and everybody thinks that that's just not, it's not sufficient, but here is evidence that we even uh, commemorate that value of the light with emotional uh, narrative. And so it's baked in fucking Leo's. (laughs) All three of us up here are Leo's. (laughs) Uh, she retracted that. How dare you? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I, I think, think she's actually secretly talking about what she wants to do to you. <laughs> <laughs> but but there is there's a there's something about the emotional uh, uh, quality of the light codes as the year goes through its expression. Uh, because we speak of it, or our our ancestors have been speaking of it in prideful tones, and this uh, this vanity aspect uh, that association goes back to the you know ten grandmas before. Um, I'm 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 loving what you're 
laying down Gabriel. Dude, you're on point with your graphics lately. Are you doing, are you using like Midjourney or something to make these? Someone did. (laughs) No, I'm using Google image search, (laughs) just finding the right image to portray the idea. Uh, You know, I do some AI generating of stuff. It's very helpful. But uh, yeah, just to finish out the symbolism, the third of these goddesses, Freya, was white, like the snow at sunrise. So they're saying sunrise, that's in the microcosm. Sunrise is springtime in the macrocosm. The blue of her eyes vied with the rainbow. Beautiful uh, Freya, like the rays of the sun, shone the locks of her hair, which were fine as spider's webs. Like the starry host in the firmament, her children clustered around her. That sounds like the sun. The air was dimmed by tears, and when they looked for their mother, she was already risen to her watching star. But now it's Venus. So the watching star, that's Venusian symbolism. I think you had some good stuff to say about that, actually, in your article let me see it's funny i haven't looked at this in like a month like i I was all into it and i was like yeah i'm it's cool like i would actually if we don't flush a lot of stuff out and you guys want to get back together and talk about this subject some more i'm down because we're not even really talking about the oral linder we're just talking about the stuff that's in it well that's kind of at this point to me that's what's most interesting about it is showing the system that shows up in the oral linda um, no hate to the Orlando or people that are into it or, or really live to, you know, live with the encouragement that the things in there have said. I know it's an important book to a lot of people, but as we said at the beginning, so is Lord of the Rings. That's to me that Lord of the Rings is just as good as the Bible in a lot of ways in terms of like uh, having a code to live by. But yeah. one thing that is interesting in the Orlando that I definitely wanted to hone in on, especially if this might be the last, the last word we put on, on it as a full video is the section about Yesus or Buddha of Kashmir. So this will require me to do a little bit of reading just a second to open the link to this page. Yeah. I want to make a comment on that, on the Freya, that last image of Freya. She has a wreath of flowers, which is specific to Terpsichore, uh, the muse of dance. One of my favorites. I got, I got, I got, I got something for her. One of these days, me and Terpsichore. You think about her when you're doing your flying elbows? Yeah, man. Yeah, man. The wreath of flowers. That's my choice. It's not said. I don't think in the. In the so that's not. So that's not necessarily a Freya image. No, no. I mean, okay. No. Okay. That's a, that's important to know because uh, yeah because Terpsichore. I made a typo in the slides here. It's supposed to say Freya the Spring Sun, not Finda the Spring Sun. My bad. But no, <laughs> there's not. Uh, there's other than artistic depictions. There's or if you go look into like the Norse Freya or Freya, mm-hmm. there's no ancient artwork, sculptures, engravings, inscriptions, or anything about the names pertaining to the Orlinda. Orlinda does claim that these were these stories were inscribed into the walls of citadels at one point, which were then destroyed. And that's why they had to be collected in this codex and kept secret. So that's, that's the story, but no, I just picked what I thought was a a depiction that fit the description, but no, the wreath of flowers is not part of it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You saved, saved me from a false association. (laughs) So I'm going to do, this is going to be some reading here to talk about 
this section, Yesus or Buddha of Kashmir. But I think it'll be valuable for me to read through these couple pages of the Oralinda. Because for one, you know, mostly I just want this to launch us into talking about the the fact that Buddha and Jesus are the same. <laughs> Dylan's ready. He's got stuff on it. But I, you know, and I also want to examine what I actually kind of don't like the way that they describe the the way they syncretize the two characters in the Orlinda, but we'll get to that. So I'm just going to read, I'm going to read this. It was 1600 years since Atland sank when something happened that no one had expected. So this would be circa 600 BCE. That would be around the time when Buddha is said to have incarnated by the mainstream. In the heart of Finda's land, in the mountains, lies a plain called Kashmir, which means rare. A child was born there. His mother was the daughter of a king, and his father was a high priest. To avoid shame, they were compelled to deny their own blood. The child was thus taken out, to taken out of town to poor people. Meanwhile, none of this had been concealed from him and he therefore did all he could to find and garner wisdom. His, comp his comprehension was so great that he understood all that he saw and heard. The folk regarded him with respect, and the priests were dismayed by his questions. When he came of age, he went to his parents, and hard words they had to endure. To see him off, they gave him many valuable stones. But, but they still dared not openly acknowledge him as their own blood. Overwhelmed by sadness over the imposed shame of his parents, he went wandering about. On his travels, he met a Freya steersman who had been enslaved. From him, he learned about our morals and traditions. He bought the man's freedom, and they remained friends till death. Everywhere he went, he taught the people that they should not tolerate rich men north of Richmond, I mean, priests, and that they <laughs> must take heed against imposed shame, which inevitably sullies love. Earth, he said, grants her gifts to the extent that one scratches her skin. He who wishes to reap the bounty of her must dig, plow, and sow. However, he said, no one has to do this for another unless it happens by common will or out of love. He taught that no one should grub in her bowels for gold, silver, or precious stones, to which envy binds and from which love flees. To adorn your girls and women, he said, her rivers deliver enough. No one, he said, has the power to give everyone equal wealth and happiness, but it is everyone's duty to make the people as equally wealthy and to give them as much contentment as possible. Well, it's accurate here. Jesus, Christianity, communism, common system. Wow. No, no wisdom, he said, should be undervalued, but equal sharing is the greatest wisdom that time can teach us because it wards off disturbances from earth and it feeds love. Feel free to stop me and comment. I'm not looking yeah. at you guys, so you just got to say speak up. Well, I want to I want to mention on the communism thing uh, in the not uh, taking gems from her bowels. I think that's talking about usury and a warning against usury, which has, 
it has a crazy modern day, obviously, with something we talk about a lot with the uh, making the placenta into a persona, right? And capitalizing or trading it on some on the Dun and Bradstreet. But uh, also, I see uh, when I see these wards against that uh, usury that like gets out of hand. I also uh, I'm starting to have an ear for that for the uh, for Islam. Islam forbids usury. That's their that's their main enemy in the realm. Riba, they call it. They call it riba, and isn't it interesting what that word echoes with? Um, Old pirates, yes, they rabbi. So lie to the merchant ship. Riba, 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 rabbi. They they rabbi. You got to end. They they rabbi. You got it, man. Okay. You got it. And, it, and also a, f- a, a fun word that we've been doing all along. I just found out what it's called is the rebus. R-E-B-U-S. And there's Speaking that. Cutting shit off. And, you know, I think that's what they're doing is like an inverted alchemical rebus to society. Yes, yes. And uh, I'm starting to believe that part of what we have picked up on in this decoding of language is the, is pirate speak. I'm even thinking that pirate might actually encode pi riba mm. as the, the T is a two and the B is a two. So the pirates or pirates, the T at the end could become a B and it would be pi ribas. And the pirates are masters of puzzling words and flip-flopping. And I think we've picked up Secret on it. treasure maps. Yeah. Yes, I think we've picked up on it. So the rebus, my favorite, my favorite rebus is right after pi. Genesis three one four. There's your pi, and the rebus comes in Genesis three one five. His head shall bruise her heel. Her heel shall bruise his head. Bruise is an anagram for rebus. And when you make a rebus out of head and heel. It becomes high ideals. And the idea of high ideals, the Platonic realm of forms that is captured by science that only they have access to. And if you come along with your puzzle language, you're not welcome in the in the click. Those high ideals are head, held above everybody's head. In fact, they're almost hostage. Those high ideals are held hostage above everybody's head. And you're not welcome in university. Ideals hold us hostage because idealism, when you look at the world through idealism versus realism, realism, you create expectations and beliefs that aren't according to reality and you hold yourself hostage and you don't live life the way it ought to be lived because you're idealistic. You're not, and then it's easy to get hurt because you had. Ronis it bruises Bruce. your head, doesn't it? It bruises your head to unpack the, the riddle of it all. And it comes right after Pi 314 in Genesis. It's in 315 that the rebus unpacks. Well, there's a two-pronged element to idealism. There's what you're describing, Dylan, which is the very same thing that Baudrillard talks about, the hyper-reality. When you have your ideals overlaid onto reality, and then reality starts to seem not real because it doesn't conform to your ideal. And then there's idealism like the high philosophy German idealism, which is basically the antithesis to materialism that it's hermetic. It's the all is mind principle. 
So just to make that distinguishment, because like in that sense, idealism, I'm all about, I'm all about the hermetic idealism, the all is mind, like that material is material, materiality is an object or idea, idea in the mind before it's material. To me, that that checks out, but (laughs) idealism as in like isms of any kind, they don't. But even that is realism. Because you're acknowledging the reality that everything needs to start with the mind and it be executed upon, right? You need to bring yeah. it out with the man. For the, so that it's the real. That real. isn't like the perverted idealism I'm talking about. Because you're still being no. I just if for the philosophy nerds to know that we're not trashing German idealism. Oh, uh, you're worried <laughs> right? about offending people. I'm not worried about that. No, no. I just want them to know that we get it. You know, we're smart. I'm just saying, too. you know, like think about that. <laughs> think about the idealism dreaming. Dreams with no action, thinking with no execution. It's like you're not even spinning wheels. You're just floating in your uh, in the delusion bubble. Rather than no, I need to actually take action to even come close to manifesting any thought I have, from speaking to actually doing. You know, and it goes back to earlier what we were talking about with the how verbs and stuff are more powerful. You know. And what is said versus what is shown versus what is done. You got to align, you align all three of those things and then you have manifestation. Then you are, then you have reality. Yeah, buddy. So I'm going to continue on this little bit of reading here about Jesus. (laughs) This is not Kanye West. His first name was Jesus, but the priests who despised him called him foe. That is false. The that's the name of Buddha, by the way, Po or Fo. The folk called him Chrisen, that is herdsman, and his Freya friend called him Buddha, that is pouch, because he carried in his head a treasure of wisdom and in his heart a treasure of love. In the end, he had to escape the revenge of the priests, but everywhere he came, his teaching had preceded him. And everywhere he went, his enemies followed him like his shadow. When Jesus had traveled like this for 12 years, he died. 12 years. Sounds pretty zodiacal. But his friends upheld his teachings and proclaimed them wherever they found ears. So what do you think the priests did? That I must tell you, and you must give it serious consideration. Moreover, You must be vigilant against their trade and tricks with all vigor that Ralda has imparted to you. While Jesus' teachings fared over the earth, the false priests went to the land of his birth to announce his death. They said they they were of his friends and pretended great mourning, rending their clothes to rags and shaving their heads. They went to live in mountain caves, but in those... They had stored their treasures and made images in the likeness of Jesus. These images they gave to the unsuspecting people, and in the end they said that Jesus was a god, that he himself had revealed this to them, and that all who would believe in him and his teachings would enter his kingdom hereafter, where joy and pleasures reside. Because they knew that Jesus had been in arms against the rich, They preached everywhere that poverty and simplicity are the gateway to his kingdom, that those who have suffered the most here on earth would hereafter enjoy the greatest pleasures. That's asceticism. (laughs) So suffering as virtue. This is, again, back to the communism thing. 
That's how that's what how these you things work. Just cut your pants and wear jorts with us. It's fine. <laughs> Victimhood is currency to these people. Also, it is an interesting point that I think echoes or allegorically echoes truth that the deification, deification of human beings or hero figures to become their intermediary. Uh, that still happens today. I mean, anybody remember Orange Man Bad being called the God Emperor? Right. <laughs> and, right. and he has an intermediary called Q. <laughs> Listen, that was one of the scary. I've never seen anything like that. The amount of power that the people on the so-called left gave that man by obsessing over him every day is frightening. Like I, cause I lived in Los Angeles during the Trump administration and I don't care about politics, but everybody, cause I just not in it at all, but people are so invested that every day it was like people were coming to work and it was like the end of the world to them because of Trump every day for four years. Yeah. And it's like yeah. the power that they gave, they were so willing to give all the responsibility for everything in the world to this freak. Yeah. Man, Who's your I can see man? how the priests, I can see how the priests get it going. You know what I mean? Like, it's yes, like, yes. All you need is the right boogeyman and the people will accept victimhood because the right. people who are against taking personal responsibility want to be thought for that's the left all over which is do it for me figure it out for me <laughs> they, they are so willing and what's funny is they're oppo sames because the the q movement was the same thing trust the plan storm's coming turning Chasing patriots Hillary. into waitriots yeah nice. opium peddling so nice. yeah it's, it's uh despair and hopium are the two levers that are pulled to keep people in inaction but ultimately, right. no one's doing it to anybody. The, these are just the excuses that are offered in the narrative for people to continue their stagnancy. And right. that's all it takes is the right story for somebody to feel justified to continue to continue failing and, and <laughs> uh, not picking themselves up, I guess. Right. You know, this highlights a couple of my favorite translations that at first glance, you're like, oh, that's that's. That doesn't mean anything. Uh, but uh, I, in German, the word for gift, the word gift means poison in German. And at first, people just think that that's a, a false equivalency. But in fact, there's an insight there. And that is that we think of what is poisonous as a gift. And some people get hooked on that poison. That's what Trump was. He was a poisonous gift that a lot of people got hooked on. Uh, and the same thing, I don't know some what language saw him as poison and some people saw him as a gift. It worked it, the same on both sides of that spectrum. Yep. Yep. And there's another one. I forget what language this is. It's either Celtic or, or, uh, 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 Welsh. It might be Welsh, but it's they were the, calling the, him the reincarnation of King David. I mean, come well, on. Him, I heard, I heard people say that. Right. They put him on that coin too. the half shekel. That's a that's a half. That's a half measure. <laughs> it's a half measure. Point five. But uh, but I think uh, the word truth also means uh, pain. The greatest vaccine. We Can we just done appreciate so this is like a divine comedy with this fucking like it's that, that's actually any of this shit seriously, man, because it's just like it's just a bunch of blind. Uh, yes handicapped short bus people <laughs> in like a free for all. <laughs> well, you know, 
you know, I got to say, I got to say, um, I've actually gone out of my way to study comedy because of it. In fact, uh, the orange man is the emperor card. It's in number four in the Enneagram. And in the symposium in seat number four is the godfather of comedy, Aristophanes, whose name is an anagram for it has persona. It has persona is an anagram from the godfather of comedy, Aristophanes. And guess what his symbol is? It's a fucking comedy mask. And Ari is lion, and Fanes, Fanes is the sun. Like, yes. It's also, the, it's also the egg, the primordial egg, right? The Fanes, uh, which is part of Aristophanes' story in the symposium. He talks about Zeus cutting the egg in half. But I've actually gone on to study all of the comedies, uh, well, not all of, many of the comedies of Aristophanes. And the, uh, my favorite one is The Clouds. Highly recommend it. It is a decipher code for everything on the stage today. Get your hands in it. Get get some. Go get some of The Clouds uh, because it's all about The Clouds right now. I'm talking about uh, the chemtrails, the dem- demon striations that they do. Those are clouds. That's the God. That's the God machine in the heavens. Deus ex machina. But also the wasps. Go look into the wasps. The wasps like is the a white pro- Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Yeah, buddy. That's you who I grew up with. I, yeah, that's what I grew up. I grew up. I, I went. I grew up with like the uber rich and yes, in, yes, uh, New England. So there's so much to learn from this. But the wasps is a. Uh, I won't go too far into it. But in the wasps, the chorus is dressed up as wasps. And they are responsible for seeding the audience with buzzwords. These are trigger terms that later on the community, when they're not at the theater, they'll actually go and process and germinate these concepts in their seeding ideas in the population from the words of the chorus who are dressed up as wasps. And guess what? A wasp is a hornet. A hornet is a little horn and a little horn is a trump. And every time people hear the word Trump, they're getting buzzed by a gadfly. They're getting stung with some sort of poison. This art is ancient and they are fucking amazing at it. And we all have homework to do. The theatrics of it all, man. We need to just give you a full reign, like theater and plays of the, of the philosopher poets breakdown because i can tell that like we just got the tip of a fucking iceberg right there <laughs> uh you've just been on a tear with the the philosophers well, he, he in the symposium. Into a lot of he gabe does a lot of work that very few have the patience or even you know it's it's like i said he, you know I, I listened to your um you just did a podcast recently with that gentleman gabe i listened to the must have been like last week or something, or it came out like it came out last vibrant or something, you know, last time you were on the show anyways. But it's just like you, you Gabe has a lot of research that is like, you know, it's just in a, it's just in a different level. Uh, it might've been with Zerlath. Was it with Zerlath about the, uh, uh, Dasein, space odyssey design 2001. Was that the one? Mm. I don't remember. He's everybody's fucking favorite podcast guest. He's everywhere. He's it's everything. So, the thing is, is like if you were to ask me to describe one show with Gabe, I wouldn't be able to because it's such a vast. There's a lot of topics that are going to come up 
in it and it's you're not going to be able to like pin it on anything right that's true that's true he's, i'm all over the place i've, I've the definitely everything is everything guy yeah man i've turned my add into a form of kung fu that uh that i don't know if i can ever teach it but it's fun <laughs> <laughs> yes mick max right gabriel is an archangel with the power to announce god's will as a humans <laughs> that's pretty much how i that's the role you serve in my life buddy <laughs> okay let's let's finish should, wait, should i tell them should i tell them the secret of the nipples <laughs> <laughs> i've been waiting for this punchline all day please well, why not, why not? Uh, I, was on, I was on my walk i'm listening to aeon bite in uh, gnostic radio and homie is constantly dropping the old uh, gnostic uh uh quandary of why do men have nipples? Oh, clearly Yahweh is insane. If he gave men nipples, <laughs> go chop your dick now, right? Okay. The reason why men have nipples, it's a simple answer, but it unpacks a thousand different ways. The reason men have nipples is because the father's message to the child will always be, you don't always get what you want. And you can take that and unpack it in many different ways. The truth of it is fractal and highly valuable. And now the Gnostics can go to sleep. <laughs> I'm just picturing like somebody with like a gorilla, like making a funny face at the camera. And you can't always get what you want. <laughs> Oh, but if you try sometimes, that's the mother, you get what you need. That's the baby. If it goes to the mommy, it gets what it needs. K-N-E-A-D-S. Is that why my cats are always doing that on my chest? Trying to milk me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, I'm going to carry us on into this Jesus Buddha sink because I'll, I'll finish reading from the Orlando and then we're going to go over our our thoughts on it. Okay. Because they knew that Jesus had been in arms against the rich, they preached everywhere that poverty and simplicity are the gateway to his kingdom, that those who have suffered the most here on earth would hereafter enjoy the greatest pleasures. While they knew that Jesus had taught that one should control and direct his passions, they preached that one must stamp out all his passions and that the perfection of mankind consisted in becoming as immovable as cold stone. In order to convince the folk they, that they did likewise themselves, they feigned poverty in the streets, and to prove furthermore that they had eradicated all their passions, they took no wives. But when a daughter had transgressed, she was quickly forgiven. The weak, they said, must be helped, and in order to save his own soul, one must offer generously to the temple. In this way, they had wife and children without household, and they grew rich without working. But the folk grew much poorer and more miserable than ever before. Okay, so this, again, <clears throat> I think this is allegory, but it pretty much perfectly encapsulates what the priest's craft has done. Just make sure you done. give to the temple, okay? Whatever you do, <laughs> your salvation, just, just better pay the temple. Well, and also this whole thing about Jesus teaching to control and direct your passions, like that's good. But then what we get with asceticism and what we get with 
with most of these religions, especially the Eastern ones is like your perfection comes from stamping out all passion or passion is suffering, which basically means sit and do nothing, <laughs> you know, uh, become absolutely immovable as cold stone, as it says here. So I think that that's, that's great allegory to me. That is uh, what to watch out for any cult or guru that's telling you to do what it's describing here that you got to like have nothing to do with the world or put your life on hold and eliminate all your feelings and emotions and all, yada, yada, yada. It's basically the angry. It's the Ascension cult. It's Ascension cult. That's what it's always been. Like it's, it's the same. It's the same scam that's been replayed over and over again. So they do a good job describing what the scam is here. This religion, which requires the priests to possess no skills other than eloquence, hypocrisy, and foul play, has expanded from east to west, and will also reach our lands. But when the priests reckon that they have utterly extinguished the light of Freya and of Jesus's teachings. In all regions, people will rise who have silently treasured truth amongst themselves, keeping it hidden from the priests. They will be of royal blood, of priestly blood, of slaves' blood, and of Freya's blood. They will bring their lamps and the light into the open so that all people may see the truth. They will condemn the deeds of the priests and princes. The princes who love truth and justice will separate themselves from the priests. Blood will flow, but from it the folk will gather new strength. Finda's folk will apply its inventiveness for the common good, Lida's folk for its strength, and we, Freya's folk, our wisdom. Then the false priests will be swept from the earth, Ralda's spirit will be honored and invoked everywhere and in every way. The people will adhere only to the Iwa that Ralda laid in our souls from the beginning. There will be no other masters, princes, or bosses than those who were elected by the common will. Then Freya will rejoice, and Earth will grant her gifts to the working people alone. <laughs> Workers of the world unite. Bro, <laughs> hold on. And this was one sentence left, Gabe. And all this will begin 4,000 years after Atlan sank. And 1,000 years after that, there will be no longer priests nor domination on Earth. So basically, I think that would put and us Atlan like... Atlan sunk like uh, 2153 BC, according to them. Some, so that's yeah. like right about now. Right, I know. We're, we're at the beginning of the blood will flow part. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, kind of tripping. Ralda is an anagram for dollar. Dollar is an anagram for all Lord. And the reason that science can't get any fucking where is because the dollar, because the dollar is bias. Uh, uh, The dollar is bias. And if there is bias involved, it's not science. And the science only happens when someone biases it, like as in someone buys that buys it It, to get a buy the science. Yes. So everybody's saying, oh, this is, you know, science is the God, but that's not true because the dollar has science locked down. And, this, and the dollar is Ralda. The dollar is all Lord. This, and this maps on my Enneagram. Again, uh, science is number seven. It's Socrates. It's scientific optimism. It's the chariot. It's what gets shit done. It's where the questions come from. Thank God. And he has the most uh, fascinating relationship, as science does, 
to the number five on the Enneagram, which is mammon, which is greed. So enthusiasm, number seven, has this antagonist. It's not necessarily antagonistic, but that's a good way. That's a close enough word to mammon, greed. It's an animosity. That is Socrates and his relationship to Agathon, which means good. So this relationship goes all the way back to whatever that symposium Plato is actually. And here we are, we're hitting it up in a whole nother mythology, the same dynamic of money is in the way from, of progress. Can I read you guys a quote just because it ties into like the invention of the bronze trumpet and all this stuff that disputes it coming from the East, at least in certain aspects. Like I definitely think they got, I definitely think they went into the East and saw the case system and feudalism and all that shit. Like I definitely think what Godfrey Higgins said about that, he's onto something, right? Especially when you have other people who said Italy didn't even have Kings in the time of Janus. Right. So like the King, all this weird case feudal system does look like it's something they like they got from the Indian priests. But I just wanted to read you something because I think I, I typed it a little bit in a, in that episode you did with Gardner, but this is just like an official capacity. According to the Latin poet Silius, um, he wrote, and Vetulonia, and this is Etruria, the pride once of all Etruria, that city gave us the 12 bundles of rods that go before a council, those 12 axes with their silent menace. She first adorned the high carule chairs with ivory and first trimmed official robes with Syrian purple. And a lot of people say Tyrian, right? T-Y-R-I-A-N, but it's Syrian, right? While the bronze trumpet that stirs the warriors, that too was her invention. This is coming from specifically, according to, to Silius, Vetulonia. This is a Trucian. The origin of the fascists, right? So this, what I think is being covered up here is... Even the Roman history is maybe a fable, just like um, the Greek stuff. A lot of the Roman, I'm not saying all of it. I'm just saying there's a lot of stuff that is. The farther back into it you go, the more it's obvious the astrotheology. Yeah, for sure. The se- seven sailors, there's seven kings of Rome. It's yeah. all, there's a lot to it. I mean, that's obviously that one little anecdote is not enough to support the argument, but we've gone into that before and it's. It's there, especially but in- that Phoenician purple, according to that, is from Etruria, which ties into the Eturians being Phoenicians, right? It's another tick in the box, not Lebanon, not all the way in the Orient, right? And the lie dies the- under the weight of its own details. And that's yes. what it is. It's a death of a thousand cuts that are. That's why it's not like there is no like one knockout punch unless the right artifact or something was found. Maybe there would be. And there are some things that they should be the knockout punch. But because of how entrenched the mainstream narrative is around history, there won't really be a knockout punch. (laughs) It will be one mind at a time converting away from the the BS belief system. and. Here's a list of just a few of the similarities between Jesus and Buddha. They're both conceived in a miraculous manner. Their mother's names are Maya and Mary. They're both a child prodigy. They both traveled along alone with a long period of fasting to increase their spirituality. 
They're both tempted by the devil. Not saying fasting doesn't make you connect to the divine more. It actually does. (laughs) They're both tempted by the devil and succeed, uh, resist the temptation, begin their ministries around age 30, traveled with disciples, did miracles, cured blindness, walked on water, etc. Required their disciples to renounce worldly wealth, rebelled against the religious establishment, the Brahmins and the Pharisees respectively, and they sent out disciples to spread their message after their death. And here on the right, we have Manichaean paintings of the Buddha Jesus from 13th century southern China. Uh, that's the left. And the right is Jesus on a Manichaean temple banner in Kocho, uh, Kocho, somewhere in East Central Asia. So this is <laughs> Jesus as a Buddha is not like a stretch at all. And you either can say Jesus is Buddha or Jesus is a Buddha, but regardless, it's it's this Nero's system of incarnations that occur roughly 600 year periods apart from each other. And if you look at the chronology, that's a, it actually fits the alleged existence of Buddha to, to the like Siddhartha, that Buddha, Gautama Buddha, what have you to the birth of Christ there there's a their timelines do line up with that 600 years you know not like birth to birth or death to death but in their lifespans <laughs> that that period is honored you know it's maybe not exact but neither is any chronology in the first place like if we're talking about <laughs> fictional characters regardless in a in a storybook but i liked the manichaean um paintings here Manichaeism is a big rabbit hole to dig Real into quick, that's though, Persian. You see, you see that Buddha in uh, the Irish, it, one of its meanings is yellow, just like the sun. Also piety, a holiness, right? Holiness to the Lord. Okay, and yeah, man. this you yellow know, halo around their heads? Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. Right. And it, the one is almost, uh, there's even like an eclipsing going on there. Uh, with the second one, with the two, with the two rings. Uh, my favorite characteristic of all of these characters is the rebel, the rebel, the rebel spirit. You know, I don't know if this is true. I can, I can hardly even imagine how this, is, how this could be. But they say that Ray exactly, Bell, Lord Ra, Lord Ra, Ra, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they say that in Japanese parlance, it was. Uh, impossible to directly contradict another person's statement. Now, this is probably along the lines of it was just rude, but the way that they say it is that that the way I read it made it sound like the language is not capable of going absolutely against the grain of what somebody has posited in their sentence. And in fact, you have to restate what they said and then run it into a wall of a false of a false uh, conclusion, so that they see the errors of what they said, and that is like a really uh, arduous way to prove somebody wrong or make them think twice about what they meant to say. That you have to go back to what they start, and it like gets you nowhere uh, to correct somebody else. And so I just think that the rebel spirit coming from the east might have an origin in whatever mind trap it was that made it impossible to say, what the fuck are you saying? I think you're, I think you're wrong, man. I think you're, I think you're just way off base. 
And if culture made it impossible to just contradict the fellow man, it really stifles progress in a major way. And so this rebel spirit might actually be our ability to uh, create what is called the dialectic, right? The, the, the opposing language. Yeah. Productive resistance, which is the power of the question. And I think what you're describing resistance is what allows electricity to work. You know, resistance is what gives power. Yeah, and it's uh you ever heard that saying what you resist persists and it's kind of true. It's like you kind of just have to let go and accept stuff in order to transform it or change it. Um but what you were describing Gabe, that re- rebellious nature, I think that is like the creation of the Arabs because that word in Chaldean, which is what, you know, Hebrew and all that stuff allegedly descends from, the Aramaic, whatever you want to call it, uh it means mixed. So I think the Arab, they called the Arabs because the Arabs are like the mix of the Celt and the Indians or Asians and Africans all coming together in that region. And that's why I think that's, that's why I think the origin of the Arabs are. And that would explain why, like, you know, that area, they're more, uh, they get the length, the, this system of letters, you know, way way down on the rung right it's in the time in the chronological timeline they're getting it closer to the last rather than the being the originators of it nice man so i have yeah booty yoga points out resistance and electricity is measured in ohms <laughs> ohm exactly now i just have on screen some of the sayings or teachings of jesus and buddha that parallel each other if you want to screenshot them to see what verses they come from, that's there or read it yourself. The golden rule, the commandment to love one another, the commandment to love your enemies, the turn the other cheek philosophy, and the do not judge others lest you be judged philosophy, and the disdaining of wealth, and the do not kill commandment. So I'm sure there's more parallels in the teachings, but those are big ones. And I want to just kind of blow past that and uh, get to some other gravy that's in here. This is too obvious of stuff. Oh, helping others and spreading the word of the the script, the teachings as well. That's in there, obviously. Here's this is fun gravy as well. Here's another Manichaean painting of the Buddha, Jesus dated from 12th to 13th centuries. This is in China of all places, but they are saying that it's Jesus. <laughs> the, the Chinese people have named it such. Interesting. And he's holding, he's definitely holding the, the cross right there in his chest. So, and that's regard- more of a Greek cross because it's equilateral. Right. But there's so, a Lotus too. Coming out of the Lotus. Exactly. This is a, this is a thread that just, you know, this is a gravy portal that just opened itself while I was doing the other research. So I had to include the images. There's more to mine out of this particular uh, cognitive tunnel. Yeah. Okay. I got something for it. So the, the Lotus becomes the Logos, the Logos, right? Absolutely. And and the T of the, of the Lotus in septenary is this is the seven and the g is a seven so the t the t to g switch from a septenary perspective 
meets right here in the middle. Uh, G also relating to green, also relating to the happy medium and the heart chakra. I love it. Yeah, we'll we'll move past this, but this is something to investigate more. Manichaeism in general, the Persian religion. Uh, also, fall- also like the highest form of gold is green. Electrum or whatever it's called, Electria or whatever. It's actually uh, green in color and then it adulterates down into its yellowness. Electrum, is that the silver gold am- amalgamation? Dude, you guys I think Manichaeism was I really think Manichaeism was a competitive, a competitor cult. And like they, they was trying to do the same thing that Christian, the, the church was doing in Italy and thus smear campaign execution. Yeah. And that's why in order to join the Orthodox, you had to condemn Manichaeism and you had to say things like Buddha is not the son. Jesus is not the son. Zoroaster is not the, like you literally had to like, swear an oath that you would never say the truth. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. I included it in our book, but um, uh, you just mentioned Electrum. Did you guys know that Amber was also called Electrum? It was confused by people and they suspect, arche- ar- yeah, ar- archaeologists suspect this confusion came because of the way gold and the, the actual amalgamation of gold and silver electrum was worked with in, or like in accordance with Amber to like make necklaces and stuff. So that's how some people started confusing Amber with electrum. Man. And the fact that Amber comes from tree bark from the resin of tree bark, that is, I've never really given a lot of enough thought to Amber. I didn't know the extensive trading operations across large networks that were going on in the ancient world, but it actually symbolically fits the whole Lieber, Potter, tree bark, book, religious Ambrosia. Yeah. That's another gravy portal, the Amber gravy portal. We're opening them up left and right. They're Uh, opening faster than we can explore them. Yes. It's so true. Uh, a lot. Of, uh, so yeah, the gifts of the magi had myrrh, and myrrh is a type of tree that you have to you have to tap the sap very so keep it alive, but also garner its 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 gifts uh, while preserving its life. Uh, and that is also in many other uh, spices and herbs and practices. But it's always to me had an echo of vampirism and luching and vivisection. And the word vivisection is very important to Nietzsche. He keeps bringing it up, and I know he knows. I know he knows. He just can't say it, right? That's subversive. Vivisection is an anagram for survival notice. Vivid in section is the word notice. So it's a survival notice. And I'm thinking in light of the placental procedure, we are uh, being, it's a rebus telling you that this this uh it's giving you disclosure but it survives your notice mm. it gets past you noticing it. it 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 evades your noticing what it is telling you the word vivisection it unpacks into a million other things and Don't i'll just try into your pirate language you can't right the can't, I, it, it, like all of this stuff is like a way of 
going unnoticed, but communicating very important things to each other. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. That's totally what's going on. This gothic, this gothic, uh, uh, putting it in plain sight. And in fact, putting it on the very first uh, inter, inter, interaction. It's at the, it's always the first word. It's always, it slips past your threshold at the very initiation, right at the face of it, so that everything else is just um, acquiescence. But the word vivisection has a million anagrams. One of them is like, uh, victory to so- Soviet victory. So, uh, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I'm going to have a hard time pulling receipts, but another one has to do with uh, sabotage, sevi, the severance. This is the severance. And there is something uh, not disclosed to everybody about that sabotage and the sabotage and being the subject. Sabatai is uh, his saint would be Sebastian, and the word Sebastian in German is Sobechtung. Sobechtung is the subject matter at hand, and it even goes back to Sobek, the alligator of Egypt. The, uh, of Egypt, uh, it is the uh, most ancient mindfuck to convince somebody to make themselves the subject to project themselves into the two dimensional. That is the oldest trick in the book, and it survived our notice. But we're catching on to these fools. <laughs> okay, so this one I'm not going to go into as in-depth, just for time's sake. But you have a story of Woden and the Magus, the Magus in the Orlinda, where this sea warrior, or one of the sea kings named Woden, has a war with the Magus and basically, you know, whoops them. (laughs) And they decide to basically they corrupt Woden through flattery and subservience. This is always what the, in this. So in the social sexual hierarchy, the priesthood typically would be the gamma designation. (laughs) Like, and this is the exact thing that you see all the time. When the gamma is defeated, they or when they see a superior male that can that could basically kill them for their treachery, they're always like, "Be our leader, then be our leader." Then, you know, it happens over and over again. And this is the story that they're saying in the Orlando that Woden is made ensnared and crowned. He reigns for seven years before vanishing. And then the Magi claim he's been taken up amongst the gods to rule from heaven and become his intermediary. So there's more to the story. You know, you can go to wiki.orlinda.org and read any of these stories more in depth. But one thing that I found, this is just a random side detail that I found interesting. Um, you know, apart from the whole system of uh, a hero being deified and then the priest becoming the intermediary for that hero and usurping her. It's basically uh, undoing all the good that they did. That's uh, that seems like a pattern that they're describing in the Orlando repeatedly, like with the Jesus Buddha story. There's a point in this tale about Woden where it says Woden was strong, fierce and heroic, but he was not clear sighted. He was thus ensnared and crowned by the mages. Quite a few steersmen and warriors who disapproved of this turn left quietly taking Kate with them. But Kate, who did not want to face either the mon- mother or the general assembly, jumped overboard. Then a storm arose and dashed the ships upon the Denmark shores, 
not sparing a single man. Later, this strait was named Kate's Gate or Katigat. <laughs> so to me, that was just for Gabriel, you know, the the cat gate, like the whole lions at the gate to the palace symbolism that you see throughout the Orient repeatedly and even in Europe. So philologically, El Gato is a cat. A cat is a cat. GC switch. The cat gate. But there's more. But wait, there's more. Have you heard of cat gut before, Gabriel? No. Cat gut. Cat gut. Your tongue. Cat gut is when they. It's what they call it when they make a cord from the intestines of animals that they'll oh. use for. So it's a it's a thing amongst the 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 priest physicians because you'd use it for surgical ligatures and sutures, but it's also for the strings of instruments and yeah. bows you used to string a bow. So yeah, the cat gate, cat gut, all of these implements of the, the priesthood are using the cat gate. So I think there's so much to it. Like what else is the cat, the cat's gate? It's the, the mouth and the, uh, the, the asshole. <laughs> Oh <laughs> the kissing my god! Kissing of the cat's butt thing. So there's. Oh. I just needed to give you that little detail. And there actually is a, a straight on the map you can find called Katagat or Cat Kate's Gate. I don't remember. Wow, exactly man! I think it's around Frisia. I'm so glad you told me that. Um, for one, uh, you know, I play the the beat and bow is a uh, we use a car tire wire, but uh, in some traditions they use the cat. Uh, what what I guess is a cat gut. I didn't know it had that name. But today, again, remember my sync with the random cat on the road as I'm listening to uh, uh, listening to Nietzsche. He's actually talking about the Jesuits unstringing the bow. That they unstrung the bow, which I'm thinking it's like they uh, they manipulated the language so that the so that the potency of the words doesn't have what it used to. And he's saying we need to restring the bow uh, and use the lynx eye, the uh, the the far distant vision of the lynx uh, eye. But he kept referring to the gates also, uh, and I kept thinking in my mind as he's mentioning these gates, I'm going to have to find that passage all over again. But I'm drawing a line from uh, Schopenhauer, shut in, uh, uh, who is the, um, he's in a Groundhog's Day. He's down in the winter. He's burrowed in. He's a recluse. And I'm drawing a line 180 up to the summer, the height, the pinnacle of the, uh, the Lion's Gate, 8-8. But now you're telling me that cat gut is literally the bowstring. And that was... Yes. That was missing my, that totally missed my, and so the bowstring becomes the 180 relationship across the Zodiac. That yes. I, I'm literally stringing the bow in my mind of the Zodiac. He's talking about the cats. You're telling me the cat gut is the bowstring. It's also the string on the lyre. I, I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Clean yourself up. <laughs> hey, we got to have the goths back though, real quick. So a lot of these Roman alphabets, um, of them that they were, uh, there was the Lombardic and was called the Caroline writing, which is uh, also Capetian on account of it being stored by uh, Hugh Capet. And <laughs> I'm just picturing Gabe going Capetian. <laughs> um, that was circa 987. 
But both of those alphabets degenerated into what's called the modern Gothic. There's so the, but it's important that everyone knows, same with the Gothic cathedrals. They are not Gothic and had nothing to do with the Goths or Visigoths in Italy and Spain. They were called that because of their poor taste and they were barbarous to, to the rest of Europe. So they called them Gothic. It had nothing to do with the Famous people. calling something gaudy, gothy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so one of the things, though, that was interesting, one of the reasons that people say it was barbarous was because of its great variety and numerous abbreviations that made it difficult to read. And the only thing I could think of when I read that was, that's like our text messages and shit. And our, on, you know, like the way we write in text with all like the, uh, BRB, like all these abbreviations where in, in future generations, nobody would really know what the hell we're talking about. They'd just be looking at a bunch of uh, like abbreviations and be like, what the fuck are these people saying? Right. If, if the cuneiform is real, it's like a huge example of that where it's just all these insane abbreviations that make it <laughs> really. So there you go. Run. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, another thing that comes to mind with that. I knew uh, that that would just blow your mind. I was so excited to share the cat gut. Okay. <laughs> that was great, man. Uh, uh, the the barb, like it's funny you mentioned BRB, which is a barb, but also the th- uh, the thorn uh, was, was often a placeholder, right? Uh, uh, John McHugh in his, in his language, the Mesopotamian language, all of those shapes look like a thorn or a nail or a, a pin, but also the, the TH is a thorn, right? The TH, um, is often, uh, yeah, yeah. Nice. Nice. So that's interesting that, uh, placeholders or little signifiers are generally like used around language that makes it like a a barb or a thorn. And, uh, and also I always have to think of he had a crown of thorns, right? Well, Espina is a thorn. Was he wearing a crown of Spain? <laughs> Spina, the Spanish word for thorn, right? Yeah. And it has a, it's actually like strangely Welsh, that thorn, that TH, that weird thorny TH traveled North eventually. And a lot of Europe's problems are because of Spain. Yeah. Whatever happened there. Spain caused the ruin of a lot of shit. That's yeah, man. Uh, You talk toxicity. So there's a toxic city. (laughs) That's where the Jesuits originate. That's right. right, That uh, his name isn't, uh, Ignatius Loyola, that's like a, a Latinized whatever. It's something like, it's like Ignatio Lopez or some shit. <laughs> Motherfuckers. <laughs> you know, uh, one of their, uh, they have a, the Jesuit. Uh, Which one is, of, you know, Lopez, like a wolf? Lobos? Yeah. Lopez? Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Wolf. Fauci. Uh, Fauci. That's yeah. Jaws. Fauci just means Jaws. It doesn't mean Jaws of the Wolf. That would be like Fauci de Lupos or whatever. Lupo, okay, whatever. Okay. It's just Jaws. Fauci de Leon. So yeah, like Jaws of the Lion. Are, human Jaws are still called Fauci too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. I always heard it like, it's the Jaws of the Wolf. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard people parroting that. <laughs> you look at that 
And like his jaw couldn't even bite through an apple. He, he definitely great. looks like a mouth breeding Keebler elf. Well, <laughs> let's let's not let's not forget what happened when they released Jaws the movie. Jaws the movie wiped out the industries on the beaches, and then the billionaires could come in and buy up all that property. And guess what they had did? They ran it again. They ran Jaws 1 and Jaws 2, and they killed the tourist industry so they could get all of that property, all of that global warming is going to raise the beach. And then Obama goes in and buys all the beach. But you know it's a scam because there's no insurance. There's no difference for beach front property insurance yeah, banks wise. banks wouldn't give you loans on those properties if there was any chance of like sea rise <laughs> right right so yeah they come basically on, dude that's come basically, on. they know the best they ain't going to be giving you fucking <laughs> loans for yeah. whatever yeah, gentlemen man. let me let me get through the stuff that i want to uh we're getting long in the tooth you know yeah i know it's fun it's fun we got to do this we got to make sure we keep doing these monthly so oh, wait, uh, one, one, one more detail before we walk away from Ignatius, uh, their family or the, uh, the Jesuit crest is a kind of a scarecrow figure in a white garb. It looks like a knight with a weird long elongated beak. It's totally Jar Jar Binks. It's absolutely undeniably Jar Jar Binks. If you look up the Jesuit crest. And that's okay. a, J, that's a, J, that's a J to the B. They always, they always, even in that, uh, Dude, we right? got that the one in there. Jesuits, there's they they always love to like allegorize stuff that already exists. And I and I who could blame them? It's fun with storytelling. You can tell a story without naming names. Yeah, that's always been the MO of the of the priesthood in the system, you know, for good and ill. Because allegory can teach you the morals of a story better than telling, you know, a mundane version of the story. That's fact. That's why. Like I said, it's why I would kind of like the Lord of the Rings to be my Bible more than the regular Bible sometimes. <laughs> so, okay, I'm going to keep us going. Uh, there's a few more things I want to get into. There's this character, Neftunis, and another one, Inca. These are some of the sea kings that are described in the Orlinda. Neftunis gets around to like we'll talk about him more later but he gets around to like Sidon and and Lebanon and those areas Inca just vanishes if I'm not mistaken not reviewing the actual text right now but there there seems to be some implication there that Inca went and founded the Inca empire in Mexico potentially being insinuated in the Orlinda so that detail is one that is a big hinge because in the game of what ifs, if the Oralinda text is older than the 18th century and is in any way older than the alleged discover point of the discovery of the new world, then that could be a point in the column of the where did the you know the white men come from that taught the the ancient mexicans the the priesthood system because there is in you know you talk about this in the holy sailors a lot the the natives themselves were talking about that that you know their ancestors were foreigners to the land they've got so many similarities with the the hebrews that it's you know off the charts level similarities that would be terminalia for anyone who wants the American gravy, 
and the um, the the Phoenician or Etruscan stuff. That's Terminalia. But yeah, that's book six. I'm still working on the audio book with that one. It's the, it's a thick one. We're getting there though. So I just brought up here in the imagery to the 18th century idealized portrait of the last Inca ruler Atahualpa. So there's that Hul or Yule or Jewel phonetic in his name. Find interesting. We're going to see that again. And the ophiolatry is quite evident. Now, this isn't necessarily their own depiction of him, but look at the, like, if he really looked anything like this or their rulers really, their priest kings looked anything like this, there's the solar symbolism, there's the twin serpents on the head. Uh, you know, it's the whole nine in terms of this priestly garb it looks like it could have come out of the old world, not the new world. But we'll have to blow through this a little bit. But I wanted to show this goddess of the ancient Mexicans, Maya Huel, Maya Huel. She is a goddess of fertility, a goddess of alcohol. Maya, you got to say it. Maya, come on, dude. Maya. Don't you, don't you hide. <laughs> don't you obfuscate and do this. Buddy, buddy, version. buddy, 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 buddy. <laughs> I got it all right here. Goddess Maya, Maya. Maya Huel, Maya Huel, goddess of 400 No breasts. American would say Maya Huel. It would be Maya. Maya yeah. Huel. So she's the goddess of 400 breasts, exactly like Diana or Artemis of Ephesus. Maya, Maya, that's the mother of Buddha and Mercury. Mira is the mother of Adonis. Mary is mother of Jesus, etc. This is the mother goddess of fertility and alcohol. So again, who else is a goddess of alcohol <laughs> or a god of alcohol? That's your Bacchus, Libra Potter. Remember the, the God and goddess are the same. The mother is the father. She's a, even a consort to Quetzalcoatl at one point in the mythos. I didn't include that in the description here of, on this slide, but that's, you know, that's in the mix. Um, and you can see the cross, like from a, just a distance looking at it. Like if I'm not looking at the detail, it looks like a cross in the middle of that sun. Yeah, and this is um, this is a modern, of course, this is a modern depiction, but still, you know, solar symbolism is replete. Look at the rays co coming off of her. Um, I then got, you I have, got, I got something on the alcohol. If this is Al, the Al Gol star, the star of Medusa, this could also signify this double terminated meteor, torrid meteor shower. Uh, uh, one of which is expressed in Taurus, and the other one in. Uh, and by Perseus, where the Medusa's head is. Mm. Uh, so that double, and that is a very important uh, constellation, especially in my mind right now. But, uh, but notice that blackness in between, that little yoni negative space under the legs of that deity, almost mm. as though to say that these green leaves going in two directions, they really do fulfill the double terminated torrid meteor showers in my mind. And that's agave. And agave is basically the same word as agape in Greek. Agape meaning love. <laughs> this is a goddess of love and fertility, mind you. Now, when we say that these are god or goddesses of alcohol, that's connecting us to the many mythoses like the flood mythos where Noah or versions of Noah are, you know, big drinkers or they teach them what they teach winemaking. So Maya Huel taught the creation of tequila out of, Mezcal is is also the common 
that's like a key tequila is just a mezcal made in tequila, but it's, it's everywhere else. It's called mezcal and that's going to wow. have the root of Moses messy. Whoa. Didn't know that one. That's good. Yeah. That's my favorite drink, dude. A mezcal margarita. It's like a, it's almost like, it's like a scotch. Uh, it's like mezcal tastes like tequila with a smoky flavor. Mm. So, right. And the other thing about alcohol, if they're goddess or gods of, of alcohol or winemaking is that alchemically <laughs> alcohol is the solvent. So it's philosophically alcohol is mercury. So when we're talking about the savior preserver figure, that's alcohol, alchemically speaking. So there's a reason, you know, remember, go back to Kai Bell, say our savior and the one we pray to, et cetera. Now in Kingsborough and antiquities of Mexico, he observes the correspondence of dress and costume of the Mexicans and their sandals resembling the garbs worn in the early ages of the Orient and the penchant for ophiolatry amongst the Mexican priesthood. Now, here's an interesting point. The Aztec calendar is very different, uh, allegedly, if the system that we have received, scholarly speaking, is how they did it. They had a cycle of 260 days. And so the same day in a solar year, one year later, would not correspond to the same day on the calendar and how they named things until 52 years had passed, in which case things would line up again. So 52 years is like 52 weeks. There's kind of like a fractality to it. But the point being on one Malinali, which is the word that supposedly means grass, in the Aztec calendar, the 13-day festival of Maya Huel was observed, which similarity to Saturnalia is hard to ignore because this festivity was based in lascivious, lasciviousness, <laughs> lasciviousness, sorry, I butchered that word, excess, you know, partying hard, that kind of thing. This is a, a Saturnalia-type uh, expression. But what is even more infinitely interesting is the, and why I even bring her up partially is because of the Huel or Wheel or Yule or Jewel phonetic in her name is a big part of it. But Malinal was the Nahua, the native woman who bore Cortez's child. And she was baptized and renamed Marina. So in that, the day of the festival of Maya Huel is named for a word that philologically, if you do the LR swap, is Marina, which is Mary. I find that interesting, especially if Cortez is even fucking real. Like <laughs> Cortez might be just another trickster god archetype, solar deity archetype, whose wife in that mythos is M Marina, Mary. <laughs> I don't know, man. I wasn't there. I don't trust it, though. I got I got something between the lines, maybe that they're cutting the alcohol with water. Cortez cut Maria is the water and often they would uh, and that's how you expand. That's how you like you turn water into wine. No, 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 no. You only you don't have enough wine. Well, you add water and you're good to go. <laughs> Not to mention. You know, if her consort, this Mary, Mary figure, her consort is Cortez. Cor is the same phonetic as as heart and courage. Lion 
you know, Leo attributes back to the goddess and her lion figure, the virgin and the lion. You know, it's full circle here, even there with Cortez and his consort, who is allegedly a historical figure or what have you. So I to me, this was to me, this was like my slam dunk. I thought this was the coolest shit that I <laughs> that I brought to the table tonight. <laughs> Maya Huel weave. There's so much to it. I love it. I love that uh, the that we're we're gleaning the commonality of that word to alcohol. That's great. Makes me uh, makes me want to fucking margarita right now. I, I'm ready for one after three hour stream. Let's do it. You know, we could. There's other things we could bring up. I had a few more slides, but um, I think that. I think that this is an all right place to to wrap it. You know, I'm not feeling like we need to press through all the little details. Uh, three hours is a great spot. You know, we can give some closing thoughts. I will post uh, screenshots in the Telegram chat of the slides that I didn't. And I'll put the whole slideshow, you know, the whole PowerPoint in there. You know, just in case anyone's curious about some of those other weaves. But a lot of it you will be able to find if you go to Dylan's unfinished uh, article or like his abandoned research, as he put it, I'll link that in the chat too. Uh, a lot of the slides that I skipped were things that you're going to be able to find in there. So it's, it's available. We're not giving up on <laughs> Rachel. We kept you up all night. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking Leos. <laughs> Sorry. Couldn't resist. Um, guys, anything to say before we call it a night, go hit the bar for some, Margaritas, Stones of the Sea. Uh, not much uh, to uh, report back on right now. Uh, I did kick off a couple more videos on my channel. Just had to kind of clear some projects uh, to get, uh, yeah, to do a big reset, essentially. You know, I, I put one out on uh, 9-11, uh, which was... I have such a foul mouth nowadays. I think 9-11 like really brought out my shadow and I'm like F-bomb, son of a mookity mook mook. Man, I got a foul mouth, but it's shadow work. It's shadow work. Uh, so if you come over, you know, don't bring your pearls. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's a couple new ones out and just be ready for me to swear like a fucking sailor. game we gotta we man we need to uh keep this going this this trinity so whoever wants to suggest the next topic be my guest you don't have to do it right now but so, somebody else suggests the next topic i'll still do the slideshow but you know help me out here we're, we're gonna keep it going this is a really fun combo and uh dylan anything to say before we wrap tell people where yeah. they can find you yeah thanks for watching everybody um my work is uh called spirit world w-h-i-r-l-e-d but you can find everything at um i uh, put it in the link in the chat greattod.substack.com and you can also find all of my socials everything at beacons.ai slash great tide and yeah i mean the thing is though i i've been doing so much work like there's if like i said i you guys both have i gave you guys both free subscriptions to my subsect so if there's anything you ever see on there that you want to expand on have at it oh well if that's open then 
I will. I will do some picking. And yeah, I told you guys that. Dude, and, I can uh, barely even keep up. You have uh, so I'm much research. It's prolific. Like, it yeah, is. I am. It's prolific, dude. It's very awesome. <laughs> we we are blessed by by all that effort, man. And I I do. And if wanna, Gabe ever wants to have us on his channels or whatever, you go over there. No, not a big deal at all, man. Whoever wants it. All around. All right, man. Well, that sounds good. I think. Or we'll... somebody out there, you know, with a big audience wants to have all three of us on to light your people up. And, uh, you know, maybe you need to sack up, you know, and, and be a man. <laughs> Get some more masculine energy on that milk toast podcast you got going where you just dance with the status quo all day. Woo! Play the whole true for status quo opposite t-o-s-s-o-t clan on there (laughs) motherfuckers t-o-s is better than s-o-t though because s-o-t is like sod we don't want to we're not sodding we're we're not tossing either damn it we need to do acronym bloody (laughs) sot either way it's a bad acronym okay all right guys we're out of here love y'all see you in the next one got a really fun show for sunday just there will be pyrotechnics. I'll just say that. And good night. Much love. Good night, guys. Thank you very much. See you, Gabe. See you, Trance. Big love.